Who's going to start the Katie McCabe rant? Is it going to be me or you, Emma? He knew he messed up the minute the whistle went because he went straight up to Katie and I don't know what he said. I should have started you. I don't think he said that, but he should be saying Subscribe that. to the feed in the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Alright, Liverpool fans are back. If you want to get in touch with us this morning, we'd love to hear from you. It was a short little hiatus there where you were the uh, the banter era, but it's over now. Klopp was giving it the big one on the pitch last night, and so therefore all is right with the world, right? Right? Right. Good morning. Shane's here, Colin is here. Turn Shane, good morning, I think. It was it was pretty interesting. Uh, pretty interesting outcome. How how an entire season can swing on the ball coming back off the upright. Mm. and James Coleman not hacking you down at that point yeah when James Tarkovsky's header was looping goalwards towards Liverpool's net they hadn't won a game in 2023 <laughs> and this could have been the nadir of the season and possibly the Jurgen Klopp era at Liverpool but struck the post it did and came back and 15 seconds later Liverpool but, are ahead whatever about James Coleman's error right whatever about James Coleman's error with all due respect it's Jordan Pickford's oh, goal wow he, he's got the assist I mean, Nunez might have had like a nice ball into the middle, but it's it's Jordan Pickford running out of the goal like he like he was controlled by the computer. That's how that's how I play FIFA. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I accidentally get control of the keeper. I'm and I l- act or something. I, I, I bring or him no. out and I'm like, "Where's the goalkeeper?" It's like, "Oh, I was controlling him." If anything, yeah. his oh. anticipation was too good, Pickford, because he was really thought that ball was going to go to Cody Gakpo. He's like, there's, 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 the, "There's the goal, Mo." Just there, just there's the, there's the entire goal for you. Just you, tap it in there. You're low on confidence. I know what I'll do. I'll give you nothing to aim at. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Connor Cody's mistake though for the second goal was almost as bad. Like just clear the clear the ball there, Connor. Your centre half. The ball's right at your feet. I have some sympathy. He just didn't want to score the own goal. That was inevitable because you know it struck me as a man who couldn't use his left foot. Use your bad foot and whack it out. He he was more thinking of getting this onto his right and. Shepherding out of, out of play, but there is a difference though between like high end footballers and those not so high end. Um, Bednarak's own goal at the weekend, right, to cost Nathan Jones his his job, versus Kieran Trippier keeping the ball out on the goal line. You know, in, you know it's a hair's breadth on the uh, goal line, and you're kind of like, what well, is is Connor Cody? Is he more Jan Bednarak or is he more Kieran Trippier? And it turns out, you know, <laughs> well he could have been more uh, Matty Bartrip for Spurs the own goal that won Manchester United the game at the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium because that's pretty much exactly what happened when the ball was crossed in and tried to clear and put it into the roof of Renette and you know Conor Cody could have seen those highlights back and thought to himself in that split second yeah. just leave the ball go by because Ashley Cole was a great man for a dummy pretending to clear it and it would yeah. go across the area and it was high risk defending but big reward if it works out because if, if that worked out for Cody that's going across the box and it's a goal kick happy out Is it doesn't get the call though Conor Cody who has uh, Andy Robertson by the face and neck. Oh the yeah, yeah, yeah. Is that who? Was well, it Cody? Yeah, it was Cody. Yeah. yeah, it was Cody and Robertson. So there was the split screen Look on Twitter. Romantic. What like Casemiro does oh, this? Happy Valentine's Day, lads. Happy oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Just on romance. Absolutely. Go on. Well, speaking well, a romantic gesture with Casemiro strangling uh, Will Hughes of oh, Crystal Palace, and he gets the straight red in a three-match ban. And Cody oh, sorry. had the hand around the back of Robertson. You're using That's it as difference. part of the Manchester United persecution complex. Okay, I was thinking more like great scenes in pop culture. Uh, uh, Tony Soprano and 
um, well, any any one of a number of, of <laughs> people who could have been, but... Mm. I, I thought it was quite a romantic moment. And even the little smirk, Addy Robertson was laughing at Pickford. Ah, Addy was having it. It was, it was quite funny. Uh, Seamus Coleman was quite um, wound up. Which you, which you don't see too often. I just thought it was notable. I, I, I don't think Seamus is shy in um, He's not shy, but telling like, uh, his opponents what he thinks of them. Yeah. Uh, but Robertson, I think, kind of relishes those situations where he can be... Um, I'd say he'd hate to play against a messer. Yeah, he'd be a good teammate, but like he'd be like, ah, this is a, a dose to play against. Like, he's a great for a second goal, like the breakaway. Our um, was surrounded. Are Liverpool back? We have to hold on here. Liverpool beat a team in the relegation zone last I know, but I'm I'm not not sure. Sure. nice team. I'm not sure. Um, is this is this one of those moments where they remember that they're not crap? It could be. It could be a kickstart or something. It here. could be a kickstart. I mean, what Jurgen Klopp's celebrations afterwards certainly felt like okay. Finally, now we're getting going because he did his uh, now famous three pump celebration. Um, to the home fans but with a kind of angered passionate face on him there wasn't much smiley even the maniacal smile that he sometimes does when everything's going wrong yeah. there wasn't even that uh, but you have to also remember that this Everton side have won a grand total of two Premier League games away from home since September 2021 and so one of those opponents was Southampton it could also be a false dawn mm. well I just wouldn't and I think they would say themselves we won't get too excited this is a pretty poor Everton side who are at the very start of a new era and fair play to Sean Dyche, first two games at home to Arsenal and away to Liverpool. Three points in those two games isn't bad, isn't bad. It's funny how, had it been two draws, it would have been seen as a massive I know. Uh, positive, but yet he has one more point from yeah, that yeah. scenario now, so it's right. not, not too bad. Liverpool go to St James's Park next Saturday. Yeah. Like that, that, this isn't the start of a new dawn just yet. But also, It's handy run of fixtures. It's, uh, it's Newcastle away, it's Real Madrid at home, Palace away, Wolves at home, Manchester United at home, Bournemouth away and then Real Madrid again so there's six games two, four, six, seven games mm. that will obviously completely define their season because if they if they beat Real Madrid they're through to the quarterfinals and they'll be up and running and they'll be dangerous and for them to beat Real Madrid you think that front three will have to have clicked and Jota comes off the bench last night uh, the kid in midfield starts to play well Yeah. suddenly they are starting to feel themselves and by that stage is Virgil coming back this season? Well, yeah, Virgil, the bench last Virgil night. was on the bench last night, and, and and Firmino came off the bench. So there's all these lads returning. Jota, you mentioned by by Chetic, as you say, eighteen year old who is dominating midfield. Like, hasn't, hasn't it been such a weird season? No, has no, no. Let me hear me out. Hasn't it been such a weird season that it's not beyond the band's possibility for Liverpool to get their shit together? But what what will that, what will that look like by the end of the season? Well, as in finish, not top four though. No, Champions League semi final final. Oh, but sorry, yeah, run in Europe, yeah, of course. <laughs> But like, because you're so crap in the league, that gives you a focus on the Champions League. You're like, well, all of a sudden, PSG are the same. Well, like, I are they? They're crap in the league. And are they? Well, what if they've lost? They lost 3-1 to Monaco and there's a big falling out with Neymar and uh, Marquinhos. Have you seen the league on table, though? Yeah, it's I know. Five points clear, yeah. But so they're not crap in the league? No, but in terms of form in recent games, they've lost four this season. Or, sorry, they've four this year. Since the turn of the calendar year, so I don't know. I really wouldn't rule out Liverpool um, challenging for a uh, top four position in the league. Like one I thing would. I think that we're regularly overlooking, like there's so many games left this season because the World Cup break. Like any, at this time of year, anyway, there still will be loads of games left. We're talking 15 games left. Yeah, there's a massive amount of points finish finish in Man United or Newcastle United. They're only nine points off top four, even though they're ninth. It's it's really doable, like very doable from this Liverpool side. Then you have Luis Diaz back as well, and some of their better players going back to form. And Van Dijk being the Van Dijk that we know of, like probably Liverpool's greatest defender in the Premier League era. And then suddenly you have this brilliant side with a brand new, sparkling young fella in midfield, who 
seriously has the passing chops to stand out at the top level of the game and also loves a tackle which he relished in in the post-match interview alongside Mo Salah smiling away when the interview <laughs> asked him you love a tackle don't you? He's like I certainly do I certainly do for a guy who's quite slight looking too kind of like the Gavi Pedri mould of player that mm. they could have unearthed a serious talent there I saw him play for the first time on Stevens night away to Aston Villa and was seriously impressed by his two touch yeah. in midfield and most of those passes are going forward all the time which is a brave thing to do very uh, underrated skill in midfield is to pass it forwards all the time so easy to pass backwards yeah. that's what those players stand out and this guy could really have a serious we're, future we're getting so carried away here I, I had mates text me after the United game at the weekend going oh United back in the title race and I'm like no ah no they are no yeah, they're not I mean, you have to be in the title race now what are you talking about what's, uh, the, what's the point Arsenal what's the, have two games in hand over everyone and if they win those two games in Arsenal hand, are being a little bit flaky I think it's between Arsenal and City. I don't think United oh. or Newcastle are but in that, that battle realistically. Well, like, again, uh, why United's not? only five points off Arsenal and there's 15 games left. Yeah, you've United, got United are five points off Arsenal. Yeah, yeah. But Arsenal have two games in hand. Yeah, but they have points on the board, Shane. I know, you know. The end of the seasons, points on the board, no. not in the bag. One swallow does not make a summer, lads. And well, they, there's been many swallows. The many fact swallows. that they won at the weekend without Casemiro, they won at the weekend with, like, on paper, the, the old... Ralph Ranick team and they were still able to um, Harry Maguire mm. Mm. Maguire got the nod he did the two, the two main lads sitting on the bench you gotta, you, gotta, you gotta alternate there's some big games coming up for United they've got Barcelona on Thursday in the new Camp they've got um, who they have this Thursday it is yeah, yeah. this Thursday so there's, there's, there's big games and there's Carabao Cup final to contend with this month as well so that's the weekend after this also what's an absolutely tantalising fixture this weekend in the Premier League is uh, the other Mersey club Everton play Leeds mm. that is going to be very interesting. 3 p.m. Will leads the manager. Tantalising, you say. Tantalizing. You could almost call it a, a six-pointer. I'm not into kink shaming here, Colin, but I wouldn't call that uh, Everton leads in the Premier League at three o'clock on Saturday afternoon. Tantalising. Oh, I certainly would, sir. 18th against 17th, one point in it. He's using Valentine's Day words here. He's getting. He's getting. I would certainly on us. get excited by that now. Oh yeah, <laughs> oh, very. Wow. Oh no, um, Jesus! I love a good. I love a good Go 3 p.m. fixture. <laughs> love a good one. <laughs> Very excited. Happy Valentine's Day to yeah. you, Colin. And your three appearances. There's nothing wrong with being excited about what's happening. We're all into different things, and some you're, people you're are. really know how to show a woman a good time. Yeah. 3 pm kickoffs. Well, that's Saturday sorted, yeah. Happy days. <laughs> Move on there quick. That's then, there's linger. What are we moving on for? I, I'm happy to elaborate. Okay. I have other adjectives to go. Did your kinks are Saturday 3 pm kickoffs? I love them, yeah. I love a good one anyway, but this is going to be a great one. six pointer. Oh, yeah. yeah. Jesus. That's what you want, like, and it's going to see the real Sean Dyche stand up. He, like, those first two games, Arsenal and Liverpool, forget about those. This is where Dyche comes into his own. Mm-hmm. And also, I want to see if Leeds are going to have a manager by then. What are we now, Tuesday? Four days out? <clears throat> Could be very interesting. Did you see the latest uh, manager linked with Leeds this morning? <laughs> you're, you're trying to move on so quickly here. I'm moving on at all. I'm embracing this. This is filling. <clears throat> yeah, go on. Yeah, yeah. Oh, Nuno. Yeah. Run through the odds there. Like, <laughs> Nuno could be the new manager in at Leeds this weekend uh, I don't think Nuno would be a good Leeds manager at this stage I think it would be a, a re- regressive state, step for them however there is nobody else available because they keep turning down the, there was the ex-IX manager was at the ground and then that didn't happen for whatever reason he had a look the statement was I had a look around and I've decided <laughs> to go back to the Netherlands right and is that a mutual thing I don't know but that's the statement I read um, so Manchester United fans stories all over the back pages and the front pages um in fairness, it's the same. It is the Telegraph, and they carried the Telegraph copy in the back of the Independent this morning. Rival United bidders and race to sign up Beckham. Who will David Beckham decide to pitch his lot in with? Uh, will it be Qatar? It could it potentially be 
the Ineos owner? Is he is he available for anybody and everybody? It sounds like Beckham doesn't want a bit of any of them. So he's been approached by by certainly the Qataris because of his role with the, the Qatari tourism brand. But um, sounds like Beckham doesn't want to really get involved. Now I know that Alex Ferguson would have been approached by most of these uh, consortiums as well. But um, from what I'm reading this morning, Beckham nice is washing his hands. If you can get it. He, well, I get they, they all want to see who's going to be the likely uh, the likely winner of this this battle. They don't want to back the wrong horse as such. So I think uh, Beckham's keeping his his nose squeaky clean for now. But look, I mean, they probably have to get, get get behind someone. So how will you feel about money from the golf coming to um, be the saviour of your club and to ratchet you back into relevance? I think a lot of United fans are hoping Jim Ratcliffe wins this bidding just because he's a fan of the club, actually cares about the results in the pitch. I'm not saying the Qataris wouldn't, but uh, let's be honest, they just uh, want to uh, wash money. Um, like this is this is it's the same as Newcastle fans. There's a lot of Newcastle fans still protesting at matches and. Uh, they don't feel good about the fact that the money coming into their club is coming from uh, certain sources. Um, so no, I, I don't think as a United fan I'd feel. Is all money not dirty though? Is that like, are we... Maybe. We have a right to be sceptical about everything these days, but uh, it's so directly dirty um, that it would concern you as a, as a fan. Like, I think if it was Villa or any, any club that anyone out there supports this morning, you wouldn't be too pleased. You'd prefer the money to come in from a less... Um, Morally questionable source, I think. Yeah, well, what do you do? Do you follow another club at a protest? Nah, so you can't do that either. I mean, Newcastle fans turn their backs on the Saudis. I'm not, not sure. Not probably any, quite a low probably. percentage. Yeah. I mean, show me a morally straight owner in the the club. You know, that's uh, unequivocally uh, a good guy. Mm. Do you know, it's. Uh, I mean, like there are better owners for sure, but there's um, at, at the very least a ruthlessness to the ascension to own a club like. But I don't know. Like I mean, even the Jack Walker millions in the nineties for Blackburn winning their league, like they still signed Sutton and Shearer. You know, mm. it's not like um, so the money matters. The money matters. And I mean, like Le- Leicester twenty fifteen sixteen was probably a pretty good story overall because you had Vardy and Mares who were two Championship lower league players who came good. That's pretty good. But you know that club had money too. So well, it's got to the point where every club is doing it. It is like you know doping every single athlete in the hundred meter sprint. You know, let's just do it. Let's see how fast the human body can physically go. So let's just dope every single club financially in the world. Like in the Premier League, just give them all. Just let the Qataris take over every single club in the Premier League and see who wins it. Yeah. You know, pump them full of every player in the world. Like, literally all the best players in world football come to the Premier League. Well, and, uh, it's not far off that at the moment. Yeah. Um, so you two are morally ambivalent about this? Or are you like, no, this is a bad thing for the club, it's bad for football? What are you, what are you actually thinking about? Definitely. Is there a little bit of excitement about how much money they might spend and how suddenly whatever player you want is going to be available? No. I don't feel good about it. At all. In fact. If the Qataris take over Manchester United. Like, there's a definite... They'll still go to Old Trafford, though. uh, I'll still go to Old Trafford, yeah, for sure. So it it won't have any impact. But this is is like the, you know, me turning off my, my, uh, my bedside light to save the planet. Do you know, we should all be doing that. We should all be, you know, doing the little things. But... Yet, I still feel like my little protest and not going to Old Trafford to support the team would not have a significant impact. I, I know that's not the right attitude. I completely acknowledge that. But I don't think a Qatari consortium taking over at Old Trafford would stop. You can't help the team you support and grew up supporting. Same for Liverpool fans, same for Arsenal fans or Villa fans. You support the team you support and you're not going to stop supporting them because uh, 
uh, group of morally questionable Qatari well, you can oil go to your, local, your local club and just Monaghan United went bust unfortunately for me well, but you've moved to Dublin now you can pick a Dublin team gonna, yeah Bows are probably I think mm. geographically the team I should pick but that, no, I, I just can't I can't do it so I'll still support the team. It's coming though. Yeah, it's going to happen. There's Ameri- there are American groups interested. Like Ratcliffe clearly doesn't have the money of of the Qataris, but um, he's got plenty. He's got enough money. He and is the richest man in Britain. There'll be people willing to lend him money at a preferable. Uh, yeah. At a are we ruling out Elon Musk completely? Yeah, it's all bollocks. No. Oh, that's like Elon. attention-seeking nonsense. And then everybody um, would talk about how the club's about to collapse. Do you remember when everyone thought Twitter was gone? Ah, yeah. Look at Elon now. Remember he said a card flying is you know? Is he flying it? Ah, oh, he's flying it, yeah. Well, I, I remember people on Twitter... Does Twitter about, still work properly? ...about six how's, weeks ago were saying, if, if this thing collapses, you can catch me on this, this and this. Yeah. Yeah. That seems to have gone very quiet now. I had to switch to recent Twitter, Twitter too big to fail. Manchester United too big to fail. But, Just classic Elon but, project. But last week he fired engineers because uh, his own tweets weren't reaching the same number of people as it had been previously. So I don't think it's gone from strength to strength. I think it's like it is teetering on the brink. Their revenue is massively down. And the whole point of the Man United thing is that it's going to get him all the Man United fans searching for him. That's all that is. Mm, yeah. Um, look, either way, like <laughs> if you look around at the potential owners of United, it's not much to get uh, very excited about. Because like, like, like you're asking, it's going to make a difference. Like, Look, so the World, the, the are, World Cup are, went ahead despite all the protests. The World Cup still went ahead and people enjoyed it. Yeah. As terrible as that is, right? So, and then you're looking at the Glazers for the last decade and a half. United fans hated them. So it was still... Would you, prefer, them. would you prefer Qatar to the Glazers? No. No. You'd prefer the Glazers to Qatar? Well, like, I mean, there's, the Glazers are awful for so many reasons, but... Um, Rocking hard you can probably there, stop. You can probably stop at a certain point the Glazers when it becomes way beyond sport and they're actually impacting the lives of human beings have nothing to do with it whereas the Qatari ownership is it goes way beyond that so you don't want to be associated with a regime like that at all it was exactly the same we were talking about with the World Cup it's extremely disappointing that this is probably going to happen so you've got to be careful what you wish for yeah but uh, like I would say mo- like a lot of Manchester United supporters would say the same like I don't like the problem is they'll take over and then they'll get the checkbook out and then everybody will forget like football fans are unbelievably fickle the United-Liverpool game in 2021 the end of that season, April or May, was abandoned right because of protests. Mm. Big galvanising effort to get the Glazers out of the club. Three months later, the club signed Cristiano Ronaldo and everybody forgot about it. Oh, brilliant. The King is back. Jadon Sancho arrived. Raphael Varane. It was like, oh yeah, we don't really like them, but come here. They're signing unbelievable players. The fans go to Old Trafford in their droves. The Glazers are happy out. Delighted. Like, you can hate us all you want, but you're still spending money in the club and that's all that matters for us and our dividends. Be the same thing with the Qataris. People won't really be happy with it, but they're still going to go to Old Trafford. Nothing really changes. Everything stays the same. It's nefarious money either way. Shifted that point now to Ineos, the, uh, uh, also F1 involved. So, I mean, there's, there's going to be Formula One and links to, to Manchester United with, uh, if Jim Ratcliffe comes in. Like, I think if Jim Ratcliffe wins this bidding, I know they, they have until Friday to send their email and, and show their interest, this will be the best week for United fans in 15 years. Like, if, if, if we got an owner that is not as morally questionable as the Qataris but also is going to care about the results of the club on the pitch which the Glazers clearly haven't for, the, for a decade and a half then that is a that it's as good as signing 10 unbelievable players for me like this will be some week but on the other side <clears throat> be careful what you wish for yeah. 
Shifty lad, good morning everyone. Happy Valentine's Day to you all. I thought it was Pancake Tuesday also, but I'm a week short. Mrs. said she'd make them for me anyway. She's a keeper. Indeed. I also thought it was uh, Pancake Tuesday today, but it turns out it's not. She's a keeper. There's only one thing Tough that you need to worry about today. And that is uh, what you're doing for Valentine's Day. What are you doing for Valentine's Day, Colm? What do you do at this stage? You're so long into the marriage. Do you even acknowledge it? <laughs> was that, uh, answer a question with a question. I, I'm more saying. interested. Well, you're, you, you're longer uh, in it. Yeah, was, you especially have to acknowledge it then, don't you? Go on, Colm. What are you... Well, can you answer? <laughs> with nothing. We, we made an agreement to do nothing. Mm. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, we're, trying to, we're getting there now. I think we uh, acknowledge that it's BS, but we still acknowledge it. Mm. Yeah. What do you just say? Say it to each other. Yeah. Come on. Come on. You know what you should do. Don't, don't well, go you know, coy now. Do you know I did this morning. Well, I, thankfully, she never ever watched this, right? So uh, I I got up and I left. I left the card at the end of the bed because she wouldn't be awake. So we're at that phase. That's very nice. Give it another two or three years. Now it'll just be a handshake. That's pretty romantic. Best of luck with the day ahead. Yeah, fist pump. See you tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Saint, the uh, the remains of Saint Valentine are in uh, the church. Was it Whitefair Church there in Angel Street? Apparently, it's the busiest day of the year for couples going in there to have a look at. I think his heart, or certainly sexy, part of sexy, sexy, sexy. Yeah, yeah. Let's go and see the uh, calcified remains of a dead guy. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Really putting me in the mood there for some necrophilia. No. What? Yeah, the, I know. The, the slowing death of romanticism reminds me. of a Story. My friend told me that uh, his dad got a birthday card for um, his mother, and it said. Um, Dear Mary, uh, happy birthday, all the best. <laughs> From John. Like a football manager <laughs> interview, all the best. They're married for like 40 years. Uh, that is no, you don't have to say. All the best is kind of like, I'm out of here now, we've had enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the yeah. contract's up. <laughs> you don't have to express your joy. Enjoy your uh, speaking of expressing joy, uh, that Liam Brady documentary last night finally aired oh. after much talk. Do you remember um, Adrian Barry gave us a great billing, a great little promo of it there on Friday saying the first minute, because Richie McCormick said on Thursday night in the news round, the first five or six minutes are outstanding. Uh, and we put that to Adrian, and Adrian said, forget that, the first minute is incredible. So I went into this with very high expectations, literally the first frame of the documentary aired. I was like, this is going to have to live up to the Adrian Barry good. seal of approval. Wow. Yeah. Wow, wow, wow. It was very, that very, first very 60 good. 60 seconds is... He's what a way to get an audience in, like. Yeah. Sure, most, but we're not spoiling it by talking about it, because a lot of people have, would have seen well, it. Well, even if they haven't, a lot of people will watch it back. But I think the first 30 seconds, for me anyway, was a Liam Brady that I had never seen before. I haven't seen it, so it's worth digging out in the player? 100%. Okay. They, uh, I, I'm only at the end of part one, by the way. Shane, you've seen the whole thing, yeah. but I, I just watched the first quarter of an hour, and what it seems to manage to capture is three, three places very important to Liam Brady's life. Dublin, London, and then Italy. Mm, yeah. And then you're seeing a guy who speaks the Italian language really well. They're just the, and it, it, he's just a fascinating character. I'm mad into his music. Seeing him uh, like chatting with Marco Tardelli at Marco's home in Italy, and then like he's even like he learned, he picked up Italian quite quickly. And the first season he's with Juventus, he's like he's he, he didn't start the best, and he's hearing the the owner speaking Italian up the front saying we got the wrong foreigner, and he's like I understood what he said. And he's talking with Liam Brady, and like. Ultimately, only last two seasons at Juventus. I hadn't realised how he, you know, you can only have one foreign player and then you could have two foreign players and Platini yeah, comes Michel in. Michel Platini came in 1982, but for his two seasons at Juventus, uh, they won the league both years in what was then the best league Insane. in the world, really the most competitive. And the first season, he was their top scorer from yeah. midfield with albeit only eight goals, Those as he talked about. Famously, Platini in 82, uh, there's a piece of analysis, uh, I think it might have been half time, where Dolphy's like, oh, this Platini is not good, he's, he's a spoofer. And um, then he scores a perfect hat trick in the second half. Yeah. Foot right foot header, and that's the Platini who's like best player in the world. Who then, um, you know, obviously Maradona 
probably better than him, but uh, who, who moves to um, to replace him. So that's the level that he's being replaced at. Mm. But anyway, we got to go. 7.53 this morning. Here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock for you. We're going to delve deep into the Ashburn Cup controversy that happened at the weekend with the captain and manager of UL who thought they were all set for the semi-final only for them to be replaced by DCU at the last moment in a very controversial fashion. We have Gareth Roberts and Patrick Boyland uh, for the Liverpool and Everton side of things after last night's Merseyside derby. We'll uh, talk with JD around about 8.35 this morning. Spurs and Champions League action this evening. Uh, Derek McNamara is going to join us in studio at 8.45 to look back on the stats from the Ireland-France game, which is now universally being hailed as one of the all-time great rugby matches. Johnny Cooper is going to join us at 10 past nine. And uh, Philippe Auclair will play out with some Philippe goodness from the show last night. If you want to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. 0879-180-180 is the WhatsApp. Uh, Eddie Hearn in Dublin last night, uh, interviewed by Paula Flynn at the airport, confirmed that Katie Taylor dream match with Amanda Serrano, that Croke Park is not even on the agenda, really. It sounds like they had he had a, a nice pint of sponsored stout or a glass of sponsored whiskey mm. and, um, and nothing, nothing seemed to have come from it. Nah, is there any, like, do we know even why they were having the chats and meeting up? Because you know? oh, a, a Twitter offer gets made, you've got to show up and, and follow like through. A, yeah, but like, I mean, it's, 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 it all leaves a bad taste in the mouth, doesn't it? The whole thing. It, none of them are really ruling out Croke Park after all this. Like, the three arena fight's going to happen. But no one is really ruling out Croker. Yeah, I still think it has to happen. Everyone's like, oh no, she's she's fighting on Irish on Irish soil. That, that's all that matters. He did say an interesting thing about uh, she might never fight anywhere else again. I wonder how many fights she has left. Is the, is the other thing? Like, it's obviously up to Katie Taylor, but like she's made all the things that she needed to do. So you know, boxing is definitely uh, it's a dangerous, dangerous sport. So you kind of want her to get out. Yeah. Well, she's ahead of it as well as possible. Yeah. And yeah. Um, so look, it's a, it's a double edged sword. You want you want people to see her fight here as well. And a fight in September in Croker, the weather's generally good in September. Like, yeah. think back to uh, most of the All Ireland finals, with the exception of the Kerry Dublin one, mm-hmm. which was obviously terrible. <laughs> you put a roof on the state, on the championship is over. They've got they've got time and space to do it, as Peter McKenna said recently. So, yeah. yeah. All right, give us your thoughts on the Katie Taylor situation. Oh uh, eight seven nine one eighty one eighty is the WhatsApp number. You can leave a comment on the YouTube stream. You need to be uh, subscribed to our YouTube channel to be able to leave a comment. So youtube.com forward slash off the wall. Hit subscribe and leave your comments, and we'll get to them in a few minutes' time. Now we are turning our attention to Camogie, and I'm delighted to say Siobhan McGrath, the captain of UL, and Rory Walsh, the manager of UL, are with us this morning to talk to us about what should have been uh, an interesting Ashburn Cup semi-final weekend for them, but in the end wasn't. Siobhan, you guys ended up going to the Ashburn Cup anyway and showing up in your gear. What was the response that you got from people on the ground when you were there who were aware of your situation? Yeah, geez. Um, firstly, would like to congratulate UD. I think they're getting lost in all of this. Um, it was their first Ashburn to win, so we'd like to actually just say congratulations to them first. Um, but we were, yeah, we were kind of probably blown away with the support we got um, from everyone. Um, I suppose that heard about our situation, but I suppose the most disappointing thing is we got up there and no one from the CCO would um, would engage with us. Uh, no one came up to us from the CCO, um, which that was probably the most disappointing thing of it all when we got up there. Um, so yeah, even though we got great support, they were just they still um, stayed silent over the whole thing. So sorry, just for people who are, are coming to this and uh, learning all the new acronyms. What's the CCO? So the CCO is, I suppose, it's um, 
it's the committee over the whole um, college camogie. Right. Um, yeah, so that's that's who they are. So they run all the college competitions. Okay. Uh, Rory, good morning to you. Um, morning. Can you... A lot of people are coming to this story late. They might have seen a little bit on... Um, on the telly at the weekends with Ursula Jacob and, and Don Logue talking about it. So can you bring us right back to the very start of this? Uh, the Ashburn Cup is obviously, uh, the final was on at the weekend and it's a semi-final weekend. So semi-finals and final were on and four teams were qualifying. How does the qualifying process actually work for that? Yeah, so Jared, straightforward, there's uh, two groups of four and the top two teams qualified from each group. So in our group, it kind of transpired there were three very even teams. TUD, ourselves, and DCU. So with one game to go, we realised that if we won our game against Minute, we would be in a three-way tie effectively, and score difference would be vital. Okay, so it's very straightforward. Four teams in a group, three good teams, and Minute, who obviously didn't have a very strong team this year for whatever reason. Uh, And at that stage, heading into the final round, so this is back in November, is it? No, first round was in November. Right, first round was in November. yeah, final round was just um, January 31st, so not long ago. Actually, okay. two weeks before from today. And you, you play everybody just once, so it's three games, is it? Yep. And so going into the last game, we saw a clarification as to exactly what the score difference situation was. Uh, a table had been published socially online and through CCAO, so we wanted to confirm that that was uh, you know, precise and exact before we played our game. So we were assured that uh, if we won by 33 points, we would qualify. And as a matter of interest, right, just in the interest of fairness, did you guys get that in writing from the CCO? Yeah, it was sent out and DCU got it as well. Uh, they were presented with five scenarios. What would happen if Maynooth won the game? What would happen if it was a draw? What would happen if we won by one to 32 points? What would happen if we won by 33 to, uh, I think it was 51? And if we won by 52 points, we'd have um, pipped D- uh, TUD at the top of the group. So that was kind of... You know, and a non-runner, but so we really targeted the 33 points and straight after the game, uh, remarkably, we won by 34 and straight after the game, we were congratulated in person by a representative from the executive that was there Then very quickly on social media. And the next morning, we got an official invitation and congratulations from the CCAO to the Ashburn weekend. Okay, so Siobhan, that's a big deal. Just Can you put in context what the Ashburn means for for players? Like, um I was watching the Ann Dalton documentary on uh, TG Card this week and like Anne's career is obviously one of the all-time greats but she's flicking through the books and the Ashburn Cup weekends are clearly very important to her and her career notwithstanding everything she's won and how iconic she is in the sport so this is not something that's small for you guys can you just talk to us a little bit about your team and, and the, the level of intensity and effort that you guys have made around this competition this year Yeah, it's been massive to be honest like Ashburn um, I think everyone would agree that's played it. It's, it's, it's just I'd say it's like a, a fraction below intercounty the standard to be honest because you're playing with and you're playing against um, intercounty players. Do you know? Um, so like our commitment um, to this competition, like everyone that's um, has any sort of interest in camogie knows that you will have such a strong tradition in Ashburn in the first place and like we've been training since I think Rory probably has this better now but I think it was September um, when we started back doing trials and, and different things like that um, so like when we when we won that match against Manute like we were just absolutely like over the moon because like we'd saw clarification that we were through and we were just so excited because like Ashburn weekend I think I said this to someone um, before that it's, it's kind of like Fela you know the way Fela used to be like you know the mini weekend like you go up for the weekend with 
you the closest people um that you've like you, you've become best friends with the people on the team and like you know it's just it's just devastating then when you get told a few days beforehand that you're out like it's just I don't know it's it's just hard to even put into words um like what's happened here to be honest and, and Rory just to clarify then after after you beat Maynooth by by 34 points you're congratulated on qualifying for the semi-finals and what happens next at what point do you realize that no in fact you haven't qualified um, so that game was on Tuesday, the 31st of January. And by the Thursday, we had heard um, that there was discontent and the score difference was being questioned. So um, I think there was a Zoom set up between our development officer, DCU's development officer, and the chairperson of the CCAO. So we were told at the time that human error was involved. So um, we thought about it, we chatted amongst management and we decided that if human error was involved, it was going to be unfair on DCU if they were going to miss out, if if this, if this was an error was made with score difference. So we offered at that meeting a playoff, which was rejected, which was their right, I presume. They wanted it to go to um, the board, as we were told. <laughs> so um, we saw clarification as the which board we saw we asked questions um which weren't answered as to what's ex- exactly happening or are they investigating the whole group or are they just investigating that one game that was played in november that between dcu and minute on the 29th of november that's the one dcu were questioning the score that was sent in for um as a matter of interest when you say uh, replay was rejected do you know who rejected the replay or the um, playoff look, i wasn't in at that meeting i wasn't in at that meeting but i i know that we offered a playoff but Right, that was deemed unacceptable by somebody because uh, yeah. it seems like it would have been obviously the the right thing to do in in this instance. As a matter of interest, what was the what was the the score difference? Like, how, how significant was the human error? Are are we led to believe? We're led to believe it's a three point difference. Right, so the you would have needed to score two more points. Correct. Yeah. <laughs> right, but you would have known what to do, and you might have. Yeah, we would have. We would have been aware. We would have been aware of that. And even like in the last ten minutes, we reached a point. I think it was thirty minutes left. We were on plus thirty-one. So when we reached thirty-three points, we kind of knew if we don't concede a goal now, we're going to be true. So kind of the mind frame switches a bit. Uh, you're dropping your centre back, you know, in front of the full back line, just making sure you don't concede a goal and you're true. So yeah. So it it seems to have been a, an issue in the, the referees' report. Is that is that the the case, Rory? See, I'm not sure what happened exactly yet because we haven't received any answers. But yeah, that's what we're led to believe. There was a discrepancy between what the referee said originally and what DCU sent in, and then um, the referee clarified his score um, the day after we played Minute. What what's bonkers to me completely here is is the communication and transparency or lack thereof in, in, in a lot of ways is that why this has reached the point now where, where this story has gained attraction because it strikes me looking from the outside in that the communication for whatever reason here hasn't been hasn't been maybe what it should have been yeah well first of all as well like um, when we found out on Wednesday morning last week uh, 9.19 we got an email I have it here. It's two lines. Um, we, where is it? Sorry, one second. On the, yeah, so the committee confirms that the result of the DCUD versus MU game played on 29th of November is as confirmed by the referees, DCU 620 to MU four points. As a result, DCU will advance to the semi final of the Ashburn Cup. 
So that was it. No mention of UL, no mention of anything else. So I just thought it was, that was the only information we had officially. And as of yet, that's still the only information we've received. So we don't know how this mix-up happened. Um, we don't know how they came to the conclusion that, you know, us being given official wrong information didn't matter but into our last game. And uh, and even every time like we appealed, we just didn't get anywhere with an appeal. So we still have no hearing yet. In retrospect, was was is there any way that you could have gone to the DRA in all this? Like, did you need to make a bigger stink now last week? Uh, you know, I, again, I, I don't want to in any way blame you for anything, but like, um, you know, you, you you do what you think you can do, and then it turns out they're saying, no, sorry, that's not enough, and away with you now. Yeah, so on Thursday morning, so we kind of gave ourselves time to try and get as much information as possible, because when you have to appeal, you have to appeal to a rule. But as you, as I read out there, there was no rule quoted as to how DCU were going through. Like they didn't quote rule 7.5 referees reports. There was no rule quoted. So we were trying to stab at the dark because you're not allowed to send in appeal without appealing a rule. Um, first of all, actually, uh, we asked clarification, did DCU actually officially appeal? And we were told they didn't. That they queried and questioned. So I don't know how they got... Uh, to the THTC without an official appeal sent in but look that's another issue as well Yeah. so we saw clarification of that too but um, so yeah we, we were seven in the dark so we sent in an appeal kind of based on referee report and home school home college sending in the score but all we were told was it was rejected so then um, we only got word on that at 11.30 on Thursday night so we were left then Friday morning like basically within 24 hours of the Ashburn Cup we made contact with the DRA and they were told that they just would not be able to get a, a hearing, an initial hearing in between then and semi-final. So we were in de- a desperate situation then because uh, still trying to go down official channels, we had basically nowhere to go to try and get the game postponed, really, to give us time to, you know, figure out how we could go about, uh, you know, getting a hearing for the girls. Like the one thing I... Every time we met the players, be it at training, and they're asking, like, what's going on? And you're actually looking them in the eye and... You know, you, you actually have no answers for them. And we're saying, we'll find out for you. We'll, we'll get answers as of yet. Like, we haven't been able to get one answer. So we made contact through, we made contact with the CCAO and we they told us to send in another appeal that um, it'll be considered. So we sent in another appeal on Friday evening. And that was just, again, at 11.30, we got an email basically saying that that appeal was not being looked at because we already had one rejected. So I don't know why they gave us information that we could send in another appeal when they just, um, you know, noted it and threw it out straight away. Siobhan, the, the, the talk of amalgamation between the Camogie Association and the GEA and the LGFA has probably ratcheted up in the last year or two, but, but certainly incidents like this probably only serve to highlight the need for, for the Camogie Association and the GEA and the LGFA to become one. Yeah, it definitely does. Like, I suppose the CCO are at the end of the day, like, ruled by the Camogie Association. So, like, you'd have to question the Camogie Association in this in terms of are they properly, I suppose, getting the right people involved? Um, obviously, we know everyone's a volunteer here. Like, no one's getting paid. Like, they're doing this off their own off their own time. But, like, you'd have to you'd have to wonder, like, um, how well it's actually governed um, when, when things like this happen. So, you'd imagine if it was all under the one thing that well, you'd hope these things sort of wouldn't happen again. Like, but I don't know. Like, it's 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 hard to know um, how we can come uh, into I suppose one organ one organization uh, when this sort of thing happens. Like, you know, I suppose coming from the looking from the hurling point of view and the 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 G, like the GA's point of view, you'd wonder like why you'd want to. I suppose all come under the one umbrella when you're when you're listening to these sort of controversies. I suppose. 
And when you guys found out that you weren't going to be able to go, Siobhan, what was the what was the atmosphere like at that point? What was the um, response from the players? Oh, it was just um, devastation, to be honest. I think we 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 woke up to Rory's message um, the following morning, and we were actually just couldn't believe that it could end over a text message. If you get me, like you know, like we're all involved in in top level sport, and we understand there's highs and there's lows, but like you expect to be knocked out of a competition um, on the pitch, like you know, you never expect to for this all to be dragged out, and that you get a text message. One morning you're looking forward to the weekend and you're getting ready. Next morning you wake up and you're getting a text message actually saying, no, you're out. Like it was just, everyone was just awful upset. Like, and as well, I suppose the special thing with college camogie is you only get like four years to play together. And like, this is a lot of our um, last year in college. So like the fact that our college camogie career just ended one morning um, over text, it was just absolutely, it was like, it's just crazy to be honest. You can't even believe that it could get to this stage. And what's your recollection of the last 10 minutes when you kind of knew the scoring difference had been reached on the field? Yeah, I remember, I suppose, Rory has said to us, don't be counting it up, just play the game as if it was a normal game. But when we had got to this, um, to the score that we needed, to the 33 points, to be honest, like we did kind of sit back and just kind of said to ourselves, okay, don't let them score again. Um, because we'd reached the point. So like, we were just kind of making sure that we stayed at the 33 points. Like, um, but like when we got to that, then we were like the final whistle. We were just absolutely delighted. Like, and I suppose if you were to take it out of context, you'd be like, why are they celebrating so much a, a group match? But like, we were absolutely over the moon. And you know, we were all chatting away after the match on about the weekend and stuff. And then like, you go from that to then a few days later being told you're actually out of it. Like, it's just crazy. Yeah, and I guess Rory, the worst part about this is like, it's gone now. The, the weekend has happened the the semi-finals and final have happened and there's actually nothing that's going to give you guys a sense of justice in this yeah well like we're just saying and we, we spoke to the players again and said like this isn't over from our point of view we're not going to stop until we get the answers the players seek like they have three questions that were put up on social media that still haven't been answered and if it means the next team that comes through next year whatever college it is that this will never happen to another team again is probably our aim from now on um, unfortunately for us it, it seems like that as Siobhan said um, that was the end of the road for the team and to happen in such circumstances is appalling so we're just hoping that it won't happen if we if we can find out exactly what happened and make it public as to what went on you know we might um, be able to save another team be it college or county or the next team that has a, an issue with the Camogie Association from you know ending up like we did maybe just as well, Jerry. Just um, I think the saddest part of the whole thing was after the semi-final, we were up, and as you might have seen, the girls did a dignified protest, um, not to, out of respect for the two teams that were playing at the time, UCC and DC, out of respect for the players. But when that final whistle went at the end of extra time, and we were walking back to the bus, I think it kind of dawned. You could just see like heads dropping, and they realised like that the semi-final was over, that they thought they'd all be playing in, and you know, for me, like that was probably the kind of the heartbreaking moment of the whole thing that that was it like that was the final chance for them basically the thing is Rory if this happened in a, a Division 3 under 10 football match you'd be shocked that the wrong score was sent in to the county board but this is like the premier third level competition it's not even the second division of it it's the top division it's kind of ridiculous yeah it, it is and, and the funny thing as well like with 
the Ashburn Cup is, as we were saying, it's held in such prestige and the amount of effort that players are putting in. Like we have girls in who are on college placements. Uh, one girl this week is getting buses up and down from Waterford for training after her she was on her work placement. You know, this is the kind of efforts that they're coming in. And then to see like the standards they set and ask of each other to see them let down by standards elsewhere, you know, is you know it's gut wrenching really. Well, listen, thanks to both of you for making the time for sharing your story uh, and doing it so well this morning. Siobhan McGrath, uh, co-joint captain of UL and Rory Walsh, the manager of the UL Camogie team in the Ashburn Cup. Thanks, folks. Thank you, Jerry. Thanks, Jen. Um, we will, of course, ask the CCAO for a comment on this and try and get to the very bottom of what happened. But, like, you know, unfortunately, there's not going to be any restorative justice for them. Yeah, and, and like even the, Rory was saying that they want the answers to those three questions, and like as in what was in the referee's report, what was the timing of it, when was it submitted, all that sort of stuff needs to come out. Like as as Rory said, it, there's nothing they can do about it now, but if they can stop this ever happening again, as you say in the top tier college competition, which is uh, ridiculous, yeah, makes a farce of the whole competition. So. Uh, right, 14 minutes past 8 this morning. We'd love to hear from you. 087 is the WhatsApp number. We're going to be talking uh, about the Merseyside Derby in just a moment. Brayburn Coffee, though, is the official coffee partner of Off the Ball. Brayburn Coffee coming to an Apple Green store near you with new Brayburn locations popping up every month. Visit applegreenstores.com forward slash Brayburn to find your nearest Brayburn coffee experience. And uh, follow us on social for your opportunity to win 100 euros of Braeburn goodness. Uh, up next, Gareth Roberts and Patrick Boyland on the Merseyside Derby. Watch OTPAM live every weekday morning from 7.30 on YouTube. Just subscribe to the Off The Ball channel so you don't miss a thing. A bit of a topsy-turvy Merseyside derby last night, but a victory for Liverpool in the end. They beat Everton by two goals to nil. I'm delighted to say broadcaster Gareth Roberts and Patrick Boyland from The Athletic are with us now. Gareth, I might start with you. The... Um, the swings of a season on a single moment as the ball comes back off the upright and Liverpool sweep the length of the pitch to score a goal. It's mad how an entire season can sometimes be distilled into 12, 14 seconds. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I think um, we were all wary of Everton's threats on set pieces, particularly with the added sprinkle of Dyche. Um And so, you know, in that moment, I think hearts were in mouths. But as you say, you know, Liverpool, 13, 14 seconds later, are up the other end of the pitch. They put it in the back of the net. And then they're on the way. And I thought once once Liverpool scored, I thought you really saw the confidence come back. I mean, there's clearly been an issue with that. There's been a bit of a mental block, I think, with the players this season. I think sort of starting the season in the manner that they did and sort of the title disappearing into the distance so quickly has affected them mentally. But hopefully this is this is a bit of a chink of light. This is It was huge for Liverpool, this. I mean, as usual, people are playing it down online because there's always... There's always a Grinch online to tell you you shouldn't enjoy yourself around football. Uh, but I certainly did. I thought, you know, this is a vital period for Liverpool now. If we'd have been beaten last night, heads would have been down. You could see everything falling apart and Liverpool falling into, you know, a pit of crap season, if you like. But they, they've got one hand on the rung and they can start to pull themselves up now, hopefully. Yeah, Patrick, that um, it did. It was on the verge of being a Sean Dyche masterclass where the team is not the best team in the game. Score a header from a, a corner kick like that and away you go. But um, such fine margins. And, and I guess it just goes to show how fragile Everton are at the moment. Yeah, it, it does. Obviously, it was kind of, I suppose, a minute that epitomised Everton and Merseyside derbies, but probably particularly so at Anfield. Um, whatever can go wrong does tend to go wrong. So when that ball rebounds, it doesn't just rebound, but there's also a kind of a, a Liverpool deflection that springs the counter for them. 
one of the things that occurred to me more or less straight away is obviously Liverpool break really quickly and that's their preferred method of attacking the opposition goal but just how athletic they were compared to Everton. So effectively it became a foot race between Darwin Nunez, uh, Cody Gakpo and Mohamed Salah, V on the Everton side, Dwight McNeil, a 33-year-old Idrissa Gay, and an ageing Seamus Coleman. And from that point on, there was only going to be one winner in the game. Uh, the, the irony for Everton is that I think actually after a very shaky start, They'd settled into the game a little bit in that period. They'd, they'd started to build attacks. They'd won a few corners and obviously came closest to, uh, to, uh, to breaking the deadlock and open, opening the scoring. Um, but the higher Everton seemed to push, the more it played into Liverpool's hands. And as Gareth says, from the moment Liverpool gained that ascendancy, I don't think there was any doubt as to who was going to win the game. I think um, Patrick Shondyke described Jordan Pickford's decision as a, a bit of a misread after the match, which would be a <laughs> bit of an understatement, I think. Um, he really just said to Mo Salah, here's the goal, just just help yourself. Yeah, it was it was bizarre, wasn't it? It was almost looking like he was scrambling to compensate for other people's errors, <laughs> but had made the wrong decision in the, in the, in the split second. I mean, if, if if that was a misread, as Sean Dyche puts it, then I think there were four or five in the build-up. Um, not entirely sure why Seamus Coleman doesn't bring the Liverpool man down on the on the on the edge of the Liverpool box. Um, Idrissa Gay loses the foot race with Darwin Nunez, but he's probably always going to lose that particular battle. And then again, I'm not sure what Vitaly Mikolenko is doing in in the middle of the the penalty area, leaving three Liverpool players free. Like, it kind of felt like. There was a catalogue of errors that made Jordan Pickford do something mad, and that's not excusing what Pickford did, but it, it is to say that it, it's on more than just him. And even if you look at the second goal and Connor Cody leaving the ball somewhat inexplicably, inexplicably after after a deflection on the cross, Everton were their own worst enemies last night. I think they they played into Liverpool's hands, but they. They also they were guilty of squandering the ball in, in such dangerous positions time after time, and not always because of kind of like a fierce Liverpool press. I counted three times that James Tarkovsky just gave the ball straight to Liverpool and started attacks, and um, it, it was kind of exactly what Liverpool needed to get back into their groove. And and obviously they did that. I thought they played very well on the night. Gareth Patrick mentioned their fierce Liverpool press. There, there was an element of of a lot of that that we haven't seen from Liverpool in in recent months and all of a sudden it was there last night one name that, that probably stands out for a lot of people is, is Stefan Bajetic in the middle of the park mm. 18 years of age I mean he, he really put his hand up not just last night but in recent games as, as the player who's is almost leading the way in many ways yeah, which is mad, isn't it? Um, I mean, I think um, he said himself in an interview after the game that, you know, it's not very long ago he was playing youth football um, and, and now he's sort of the star man at Anfield in a Merseyside derby. And I have to be honest, I, I've been impressed by him, but I was a little bit worried. Um, Everton have got physicality in the middle of the park and I thought maybe he'd be muscled out of this game a little bit. I think Everton tried that early on. Um, there was a few sort of challenges in on him, which you know to sort of test his metal, if you like. But he came through that. He emerged and, and and he played his own game. And I thought he was playing some fantastic passes. He was getting stuck in, and there was actually a chance towards the end where I thought it opened up for him. And you know I was getting sort of shades of Steven Gerrard. I just thought put your foot through that, 
you know, if that hits the back of the net, the roof's going to come off. But he decided to play the pass. I think there's plenty of time to come from, isn't there? You know, 18 years old, putting in a performance like that is really positive. And, and look, you know, there, there was a bit of a sort of, you know, a narrative around the game. I was listening to a lot of the build-up media and stuff in, in the day before the game. And there's a lot of stuff about that, about, you know, Liverpool, uh, a soft touch. Liverpool can be got out in the middle of the park. Everton are sort of, you know, dogs of war rebooted under Sean Dyche and this is going to be their day. So I think there was a bit, there was a huge pressure on Liverpool, huge pressure on an 18-year-old lad playing in the middle of the park. And, you know, he passed that test with flying colours. The thing is, that build-up all seemed true, Gareth, over the last month. I think this is their first yeah. win of, of the calendar year. Like, yeah. Liverpool were kind of in a situation where you could almost make any statement about them stick because it had been so chaotic so disorganised, so out of character. So, that I, look, you know, you, you can't say this is going to turn the whole season around, but certainly the front three played well as a unit. There's some strength and depth coming back in terms of players on the bench last night. Jota gets some game time, and all of a sudden things start to look a little bit better. Yeah, loads of positives, as you say there. I mean, you know, to see Jota coming off the bench, Firmino coming off the bench, Van Dijk being on the bench... All of those things, fantastic for Liverpool, obviously. And then, you know, seeing a performance from Jordan Henderson again, um, he, he's looked a little shot when he's been involved. He's not, he, he's not, he's not got the minutes in this season, and we've missed them. Um, and I, I thought he put a decent performance in last night as well. I enjoyed when he closed down Pickford and put in a tackle. I think at that particular moment that lifted the crowd. And you know, that's what you need in Merseyside derbies: little moments like that, little sort of, you know, signals of effort from the players. And I thought everything was right. You know, you, you're right to say that. There's so many stories about Liverpool in, in the last few weeks that have been right. And, and you know, Jürgen himself has, has talked about body language, has talked about not winning your challenges, not winning your battles. Um, I thought he did all of that last night. And, you know, I enjoyed him as well. I thought there was a lot of honesty from, from Jürgen post-match. You know, he said he was relieved. He knew the pressure was on a little bit. He was even talking at one point there in his post-match interview about taking his clothes off. And, you know, I think I think we all felt like that a little bit. You know, this was absolutely vital. And you're right to say, you know, it does, it's only one game. It's only three points. But there's just that little chink of light now. You know, can Liverpool now take that on, go to Newcastle, get a result there? All of a sudden, you know, it would have seemed mad almost a week or so ago to say, they can still get top four. Now you look like slightly less crazy and saying, well, it's a possibility at least. What about the, the Daesh era? Um, what what are you hearing from around the club and, and just in terms of what the team is going to look like? Because obviously two massive games to start with, the team who've been the best team in the country, uh, first day out and then a Merseyside derby second day out. So it's too early to draw any conclusions, but um, what are the early indications from around the club about how things are working out for him, Patrick? Yeah, they've, they've largely been positive, to be honest. Um, I think he, he came in and almost like a breath of fresh air. And, and so far as he was simplifying messaging, trying to get the players to focus on kind of their success, their history over an extended period of time as individuals to get where they are now. Um, lots of positive messaging. Obviously, a spectacular opening game where they not only beat Arsenal, but thoroughly deserve to beat Arsenal. Um, the side that you think will probably go on and win the league. So a, a lot of the early signs have been positive. Um, certainly the fans have warm warm to his, his, his kind of no-nonsense style and his, and his straight talking. 
last night felt like a bit of regression. It, it felt more like a Lampard performance than a than a Sean Dyche performance. And what I mean by that was that Everton just looked fragile, particularly in transition. They looked fragile, um, but also on the ball, they were ponderous and, and lacking in energy. I just thought it was a limp performance all around from Everton. So it was a bit of regression. But I think there's an acceptance from the fan base that Dyche is coming at this from a very low bar. He's inheriting a group of players that are flawed. There are obvious, serious deficiencies in the squad. And we saw that last night with Calvert-Lewin being substitute, substituted out of the starting lineup for, for a 22-year-old in Ellis Sims. Uh, a pretty thankless task for him in, in an away derby at Anfield. Um, so this is going to be a, it's going to be a kind of a steady thing that needs to build over time. Dice doesn't have loads of time to get it right, but but he needs to do the best he can with this group of players. And I think, to be honest, if you asked Dice and if you'd asked Everton before these two games and said, "Would you take three points from Arsenal and, and Liverpool?" <laughs> the answer probably would have been a resounding yes. <laughs> However disappointing last night's game was, um, the big challenge now is Everton have tended to fare okay. Against the big teams this season, they've tended to to grind out results and and have a structure off the ball that's conducive to to limiting the best teams in the league. Where they've really fallen short is in imposing themselves on weaker opposition, on dictating play and carving out chances. There's a there's an obvious lack of create creativity in the side, but there's an obvious lack of goals too, which is why they're down towards the bottom end of the league for for goals scored. The run coming up is pivotal. You've got Leeds on Saturday, which is kind of your perennial cliched six-pointer in the relegation battle. Then it's Aston Villa at home the weekend after. And then I think you've got a trip to Arsenal followed by a trip to Nottingham Forest. That feels like a really decisive period in Everton's season. If if the, if they were to get two or three wins from that run, then you probably look at it and think they're going to be okay. They, they've got enough points on the board just to drag themselves over the line here. Um, but if they were to lose to Leeds and, and Aston Villa, certainly, then I think you, you are starting to stir down the barrel. So it, it's all on this next run for me. It's all on this next four or five. That, and that, on, and so, how Dice can get these players to respond to, to what was a, a serious disappointment last night. I think you mentioned no-nonsense approach there, Patrick, from, from Dice and Alex Iwobi was speaking after the Arsenal win and saying he, 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 he couldn't move off the couch after the game. He was so <laughs> wrecked tired. I think they ran more in that game than... They had at any point under Frank Lampard's tenure, which which speaks volumes. Uh, he's banned snoods and hats and training and all this sort of uh, classic yeah. Deichisms. But but clearly the players will respond to that. You know that th- that no nonsense approach is something that um, clearly Burnley players responded to. So so why not Everton? Yeah, I, I think it's seen as a bit retrograde on the outside, and I do understand why. What you've got to do, I think, in the modern game in particular, is explain why you're doing things. To these players, you need to you need to tell the players, "I'm doing this for reason X." And in the case of the snoods and the, the long socks and the shin pads in training, the the logic from Dyche's side is that he, he, he these are the things that you play within the game. You, you you can you wear long socks, you wear shin pads. You need to train as you're going to play in a match. So that kind of makes sense, and I think the players have bought into that. Um, in in so far as the the, the running goes. I think the, the the league average before the Arsenal game is about 109 kilometres as a collective. Um, they were up at 116 against Arsenal, so obviously that's a marked improvement. Dyche wants that kind of strong running and that kind of. I think he presses higher, particularly at home, than than a lot of people give him credit for. 
Um, so there have been no kind of notable deviations already from what Lampard did and Lampard's kind of pre- preferred style. He wanted to make Everton fundamentally more progressive as a side, in, in particularly in possession. Um, but the game against Liverpool did feel like they'd lapsed back into a lot of those bad habits, kind of leaving players isolated against the pace of Salah and, and Gakpo on the break. It, like I say, it did. It felt like it played into um, into Liverpool's hands. And that's probably more on that group of players than Sean Dyche. I think he just probably needs a little bit longer to completely embed his methods at, at the football club. Gareth, the other big story yesterday um, came from the independent group looking at the handling of the Champions League final and they've laid the blame squarely at the door of UEFA, which I think any of us who were there at the time understood fully that uh, there was a lot of responsibility and it certainly wasn't the fans who were just trying to go about their business to get to the game. Um, What was the response from Liverpool fans that you were speaking to yesterday about the report? What did you make of the report? I mean, first of all, first of all, I think it's it's worth saying that it's it's shambolic how it's come out. Um, you know, for it to take this long and then for it to come out via leaks to the media and, and a copy not even arrive on the doorstep of Liverpool Football Club uh, says an awful lot about the shambles that remains around UEFA. Um, it, it comes as no surprise, I, I think, to Liverpool fans. We 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 know that that our own were not at fault uh, for what happened out in Paris, and and as the report itself says, it's in fact the actions of Liverpool fans that present, uh, prevented it from being much worse. And you know, you say you know everyone who was there knows what unfolded and knows what happened, but you know, I'm still seeing people who who trotted out. You know, mistruths on the day who are yet to apologise. I'm thinking about you know Jake Humphreys on BT Sport and things like that. You know, he was very quick to talk about the actions of the fans on that night, and we yet to hear him say he got that wrong, despite a report now landing on the table. So, yeah, it's. Um, I think what's important now is what happens next. So you know, um, UEFA seems to be run like a corner shop when it's supposed to be, you know, at the top of European football, organising huge events. And it's good to hear them called out, but what I would still would There are plenty of Liverpool fans, by the way, who would say, who say, and they mean it, they, would, they wouldn't go again. They, wouldn't, they don't want to go to a showpiece event organised by UEFA because they don't trust them to get it right. Now, that's what they need to build, that trust. They need, they need to tell us, and football in general, well, what are you going to do different next time there's a final? Uh, remarkable that no one lost their life uh, the words near miss and that's used in, in terms of a potential catastrophic loss of human life um, you know I, I think again you don't really want to think about how bad it might have been but you actually have to otherwise yeah. they might repeat the same issues this could happen again in Istanbul this year like who knows what's going to happen yeah I mean I saw it in the eyes of people who were there when, when they returned back to Liverpool um, you know I didn't go myself um, I actually had my son who really wanted to go and, you know, I'm, I'm delighted, obviously, with hindsight that we didn't go. Uh, but people who've come back said things like, you know, like I said already, you know, they, they don't want to go again. They don't trust UEFA. A lot of people sort of felt almost, you know, they fell out of love with football a little bit because of that night, because of those incidents. And, you know, it, it, it a lot of times passed. And I'm cynical about sort of when that's come out. It, it, it stinks of sort of trying to hide some news behind a big football match that it comes out when it does. Um, and yet UEFA have got a lot to prove to, to football that, you know, they're going to learn from this and they're, and they're going to make changes for this. But, you know, it's good to know and it's good to see 
that you know Liverpool. It's been put out there publicly once again that this is not down to Liverpool fans. And look, you only have to get again. I always talk about the internet because people bat it off, but it is important and it is part of society. And that news breaks last night. And some of the first comments are, this is ignoring who it is again. This is ignoring that it's Liverpool fans. So there's plenty of people still out there trying to trot a narrative around Liverpool fans somehow being at fault, uh, which is sad. Um, hopefully stuff like this helps to change that. Yeah. All right. We've we got to leave it there. Um, I, I guess before we finish up here, though, Gareth, uh, you're definitely feeling like, you know, the season's back alive again. All of a sudden, it's amazing what one result will do. 100% yeah and you know I said before Newcastle at the weekend we've got Real Madrid after that and Crystal Palace away after that um, I always thought this 12 day period would be massive for Liverpool's season hopefully now they can get it back on track Gareth Roberts and Patrick Boylan thanks a million folks cheers cheers it's uh, our review of the Merseyside Derby last night which finished 2-0 um, that trio up front playing well looking good making yeah. chances for each other scoring it's handy when they're two tap-ins Playing high wide as well, those two high wide and then the the striker in the middle kind of holding back a little bit. It was a, like a Liverpool of old. They they actually looked not just in shape but in pressing as well last night, like the Liverpool team that, that have been in years gone by. Now look, we've spoken about Everton's record at uh, at Anfield; it's not good at all. So it has to be taken with a relative pinch of salt. But if they can back it up by beating Newcastle at St James's Park, Liverpool firmly are back. So um, yeah, positives for Nunez, positives for Gakpo. Salah looked. Uh, more like himself last night even Jordan Henderson as well so uh, a lot of positives for Liverpool fans to take they should be feeling in a, in a pretty good mood this morning I think it is 8.36 if you want to get in touch we'd love to hear from you you can get us at Off the Ball AM on Twitter you can get us uh, on YouTube youtube.com forward slash Off the Ball for the live stream or of course if um, you want to text us 0879180180 is the WhatsApp number loads of comments coming through which I'll get to uh, in just a second um Everton have a huge-looking team, but have no physicality or intensity at all, says Quirky1980. Salah Nunez bullied everyone around them. Salah's core strength is such a handful. Mm. Antoine Dupont-esque. <laughs> Turns out Salah's good at football. We just forgot. Because he hasn't... You know that little bended goal into the far corner? Haven't seen it uh, too, too often, but uh, he, looked, he looked brilliant last night. Just quicker, more focused. Maybe it's... I think it's important that Andy Robinson was being a bit of a dick last night as well because that's yeah. he, he needed to feel himself. Yeah, you know, and like that's what you want. Well, yes, it has to feel like a derby. And, he's, uh, he's definitely like when he when he's honest, everybody the opposition always hates him, and that's exactly what you need in your team. But sorry, derbies need to feel like you see the United Leeds game at the weekend. The hatred in the in the the stands, like every time a United player had a, a goal, a, you know, a goal kick or a, or a throw in. But like you, you want to see that. You don't want to hear some of the chants that were that were chanted by both sets of fans. But you, you want to see. The, the hatred and David De Gea giving it loads after Ganacho scored last night Coleman and all the Liverpool players giving it loads so a derby needs to feel like that it mattered for sure Paul Mallon says Van der Vaart uh, Van der Vaart uh, Virgil van Dijk wasn't very good this season before his injury Liverpool also haven't been that bad at home this year away from home seems to be the issue you'd still have to think they will come good uh, yeah uh, it's the away from home and how it's going to go in the Champions League that's all that's important at 8.38 though John Duggan is with us John Chair and Shane how is the form how are you doing not bad thanks Champions League tonight? Yeah, and Tottenham uh, in a real flux with injuries. So Banton Correa for the rest of the season. Sassignon's injured. Basuma's injured. Lloris is injured. You probably have Saar and Skip in the middle of the park this evening. It probably helps that uh, Serie A is not as, as, as good as it was in terms of a, a league. Um, but Tottenham's problem is inconsistency. Antonio Conte calling the players out uh, yesterday for um, lacking maybe mental fortitude under pressure. 
and they were dreadful against Leicester. As good as they were against City, they were just as bad against Leicester. And that's the problem when you don't have a strong enough squad and you don't have enough depth and you don't have a solid defence. Um, they only have really one proper defender, that's Romero. So I, I have no idea really what's going to happen tonight, but I think the injuries, like Bentancourt especially, are, are going to hurt them. Olivier Giroud, Arsenal man, going to come back and, and haunt Tottenham tonight potentially. Score the winner against Torino at the weekend for AC. So a man in form. Yeah, it's just hard to see where Italian football's at. Like I've just uh, spent this morning because I watched Liverpool Everton watching the Liam Brady documentary. Mm. Back, I've watched about half an hour, but it's a really, really good, really, really good watch. And when Liam was playing for Juventus, they were, you know, it was the top league in the world. You know, most of that team that he played with went on to win the World Cup that year. Italian football's not 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 in that space now. So, um, if Tottenham were full strength, I'd fancy them, but because they're not, um, it's hard to see. You know, will Kane, Son, Kulisevsky have the ball? You know. Um, Paris Saint-Germain Bayern Munich this evening as well in um, Paris both of those not matches. a bad tie <laughs> no they repeated the final isn't it from a couple of years ago um, amazing the PSG still haven't won this Champions League um, but yeah Liverpool Everton I really didn't take much out of it to be honest uh, I think bigger tests are, are ahead with Everton or with the teams around them whether they can score enough goals to stay up is, a, is definitely a question and with uh, Liverpool I think Real Madrid will tell a lot about where the health of Liverpool is but I suppose for anybody a bit worried about Klopp's um, mood the fact he was fist pumping to the crowd was a positive sign and I think he seems to be up for the rebuild however the rebuild will look in the summer um, in terms of what else is going on um, obviously the UEFA having its own uh, report commissioned and that independent report damning and really really critical of, of UEFA normally these are whitewashes yes and this was the opposite actually so maybe this is an unedited version that they didn't get to in time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, just some of the quotes. The panel concluded UEFA's event owner bears primary responsibility for failures, which almost led to disaster. It's remarkable. No one lost their life uh, for the scenes around the Champions League final last May uh, between uh, Liverpool and um, Real Madrid. Uh, UEFA should have retained a monitoring and oversight role of security to ensure it all worked. It self-evidently did not. Uh, while it was a contributory fault of the French police and French Football Federation, UEFA was at the wheel and there was no evidence for claims um, that ticketless fans were to blame. They uh, claimed they branded reprehensible. So amazing that this can happen with the amount of money and millions that are swirling around the game. Yeah, I think um, they also said that uh, the policing was based on an understanding from the um, Parisian police that hooliganism had caused Hillsborough. Right? That's buried in the report as well, where you're like, what? How, how does anybody still think that? To this, like, how, how is that still there? And the fact that UEFA hadn't kind of tapped them on the shoulder and said, no, 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 that's wrong. Um, you don't need to use tear gas when people are just coming to the, to, to use the tickets they've paid for. You don't need to be spraying the tear gas in their face as a means of, like, saying, we're not opening this gate just yet. Sorry, the fact that Liverpool fans were herded into a perimeter fence and a motorway underpass and, you know they're having youths in Paris trying to rob tickets off them, and like to put up feel, with that before a match is just. It did feel dodgy AF uh, before and after, um, and you know that whole kind of sense of there being a near miss. Like, yeah, yeah, scandalous stuff. Uh, John, you mentioned the Liam Brady documentary. I, I feel like I want to buy a Sampdoria jersey after it. They're pretty cool, aren't they? They're very, very, very cool. Like the whole documentary last night, even the parts where he's talking about the '79 Cup final against United FA Cup final and, and they're celebrating and the Irish flags on the front you, you forget all the Irish names that were there and talks about being stopped at Heathrow Airport all the players were constantly stopped the obviously Irish people coming over to to London 
during the Troubles were constantly questioned. They were only, of course, let through when they were saying, well, we're professional footballers. But like his, his life and career is just... The 1980 FA Cup final against West Ham, in the Arsenal squad, there were seven Irish players <laughs> in that, that squad. It's unreal, like. Uh, which was always a good trivia question in school. Um, but yeah, it's amazing that so many, so few players from England would have gone and played abroad at all. Like Kevin Keegan, probably the only other one at the time. You know, um, Santori, yeah, I've never been to Italy. Kind of just tempted when you're seeing um, Liam speaking to Marco Tardelli in these beautiful houses and overlooking all these lakes that you Lake just, Como. Just want to get onto a plane, you know, and, <laughs> and walk around and people watch. Um, yeah, Owen Morgan retiring as well. I see that from cricket. Um, so obviously followed his dream to go to uh, England, played with Middlesex since 2005, 275 times he played for them, 16 test appearances. But it was the one-day game that he really starred in, 126 times, skipper in England. And obviously they won the World Cup for the first ever time under his watch in 2019. It's an amazing career. It is an amazing career. But it just struck me as a little strange that there was no mention of Ireland in his retirement statement. Um, one of our best athletes he of the last 20 years. He, he left home to follow his dream. Wasn't that what the... That's how... Uh, no mention of the Irish cricket team. Is that what you mean? Yes. Um, where he played at a World Cup in 2007 yeah yeah uh, I, I, look we're always going to have a, a, a tricky relationship with um, with our nearest neighbour um, but like in terms of all time great Ireland sports careers oh he's up there do you know well, certainly the last 20 years he's he's one of Ireland's greatest athletes I know he lined out in the white not many sports who not many sports people who won a World Cup. No equivalent. Now, okay, it's yeah. Well, you know, it's very important. England, one of the greatest cricket nations in the world, and he captained them. I mean, they're, they're like clearly set a bar. I mean, we're always. No one wants to say this, but we're always going to have a. There's always going to be an element of us talking about Owen Morgan that everyone has a slight hint of jealousy in their in their mouths when they're talking about him because he moved to England. But I mean. There was nowhere else for him to go. No, you got to respect it. Like, no, it's a different world. Like England is England is professional cricket. Say, and I know we're trying to make strides here, but England is a completely different universe. Say, he was a baseballer and he won a World Series. Oh, we'd be lauding him from the rooftops. Like, say, he played for the Yankees, which is basically what he's done. Yeah. Right? He, he's made it to be like the star batter slash pitcher or all rounder for the for the Yankees. Mm. And um, captain them to win a World Series, right? A Subway Series, basically. And it's like, yeah, that's pretty good. Well done. Yeah, okay. <laughs> yeah, fair player. Which is, it's a, it, it's a bit shit on our, our part, right? Hundred percent. Well, we should appreciate and celebrate on Morgan. It's tough to when he when he played for, played for England. We we <laughs> probably for that reason don't do it. But maybe we should all take an introverted look at ourselves. And he's a dub, isn't he? Respect me as a dub. Yeah. Rush, yeah. yeah, yeah. So straight on dubs, Mount Rushmore. Oof. If he sees a pun. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I, 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 yeah, I, I'm still happy with my Dublin Ram, my Rushmore. How many years is it? Two years on? You're not happy. I am still very you happy. You picked the South it. Dublin one, John, did it? No, yeah. well, I, when I think about it, actually, no, I picked the whole Dublin one. There was a North and a South, and, I, and then I, I picked the, the whole one. But then, um, so I picked Jim Gavin, Brian O'Driscoll, Patrick Harrington, and Paul McGrath. And Brian O'Driscoll is obviously originally from North Dublin anyway. He's from Clontarf. Um, and then Brian Kerr then I think took out O'Driscoll and put in Michael Carruth and that's what happened where's Sexton? <laughs> you see right. you, you can only have one rugby player now, right we, we didn't mean to open that uh, that kind of worms yeah. Yeah. but oh, oh Morgan you know it's uh, it's pretty good uh, right John good stuff alright lads 
More from John on Saturday afternoon and off the ball on News Talk at 8.47 this morning. Up next, we're going to hear from Derek McNamara from reactrugby.com. First, Joe, Mick and Richie reflect on Ireland's win over France from last night's news round. A few sporting things happened this weekend uh, on the pitch as well. Turns out they are genuinely, and we can say this soberly, this is not just hype, they are genuinely awesome. It's awesome. They're so good. They are so good. But do you not still have this thing where you no. feel dirty or like some, somehow wrong in sort of admitting the evidence of your eyes no I don't because it's just so obvious I'm just getting to that point as well but just so I'll good. tell you what I was getting to that point is that, you know when France came back yeah. and were like France weren't bad on that's what like, the reason great. it was a classic yeah. game was because how good France were you know and they uh, ran the ball too much and played into Ireland's hands the, they turned, maybe they turned all, from, all uh, their tactics kicking were. team into a running team and Ireland said well which made for much. great watching as well I yeah. suppose but you know when France were coming back into it and they had all the momentum at the start of the second half and Ireland were making mistakes for yeah. the only time in the game and then Ireland calmed it down. We can go into like loads of different like positives as to why and like Doris taking the game and the bench, all the inexperienced yeah. ads at the bench playing well. But more of the fact that it was like Ireland just showed this now. And I was watching this thinking to myself, they're going to win this game. Mm. And they're actually, you know, and it's going to be comfortable. I actually, before Ringrose try anything like that, I just had this feeling that Ireland had settled here and it was going to be enough. And it's really hard to comprehend being an Irish sports fan all your life and I don't think in any sport having ever supported like a dominant team maybe like the Patriots or something but in any of the main sports never supporting a dominant team to sort of get your head around the fact that they're the team that I've watched do to my teams for my entire life you know that's the Manchester United or that's the New Zealand (coughs) or whatever and that's what Ireland are doing at the moment and it takes a while for your brain to trigger but once it does you're like God we are comfortable here Right, that's the lads last night speaking about the game and I'm delighted to say uh, Derek McNamara of reactrugby.com is with us to uh, parse some of the stats and figures. A a nice one to do when we're winning games like this. It is. I think there's a direct correlation between me joining to start doing this and it's being the best thing in the world it's just yeah. it's uncanny like you after know? the first game against New Zealand though I have to say well, you know I know and you, you, things you, turned you around believe now, I, I believe now <laughs> yeah. I put Good. my hand in the wound and I'm like yeah okay I'm covered in blood okay don't worry I'm pretty sure those days are going to come back so don't worry about it it's all cyclical right <laughs> yeah yeah no well like I think you know it's, it's good to kind of jump back and, and even start where we left off last week which was um, World Rugby are trying to implement these new rules around the game to try and speed the game up and try and improve the overall standard of the game. I just want to point out everybody, we were on this. We've been talking about the ball and play time basically since we started I've been last doing summer. It for around eight years. It's the first time anybody's going to listen to me. So, <laughs> <laughs> but it, it was it was the big talking point in all the papers afterwards. Yeah. Like, oh, look at the difference. But you you went like this is one of those bits where uh, past performance is no indication. Of, but actually, sometimes it really is. Yeah, but it's more so. The one thing we want to try and remember the word that we want to try and remember is conditioning okay so in order for you to be conditioned to play this way all players must be at a certain level and you know when we actually take a kind of mile high view of it you know we got everybody who's involved in Irish rugby from schools to club to international all the way up you know needs to step take a step back and and enjoy this moment and, and feel part of it and as we lead up to the World Cup because it's it's not just come as a result of now, obviously, there's one significant person whose fingerprints are all over this, who's leaving for France next year, um, Mr. Lancaster, uh, because his way of training the Leinster team and being able to get them conditioned enough to be able to play at this level 
is is a very significant part of the way in which why, why Ireland are playing this way. But I, I have a couple of graphs here just to kind of outline. And I'm sorry if these feel a little uh, COVID-y. <laughs> you would have seen these types of graphs before. But basically, um, if we have the first graph there, that'd be great. Um, so basically, this is just the kind of ball in time um, in minutes over the last year and the international games uh, through the summer and then autumn internationals. And the, 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 the lines that are in green are the Ireland games. Okay, so anybody who's not watching... Um, basically, we're just showing the, the average or the actual total number of game minutes per game over 2022. That the ball is in place. The ball is in place. So that's basically when the ball is kicked off, the guy, somebody catches it, goes to Rook and then kicks the ball out. We stitch those seven or eight seconds together to give us the actual amount of time of ball in play, which is really, really important for uh, being able to help your team get conditioned. It's really important for you to be able to understand how much time your SNC coaches need to use, get their players ready for games. It's 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 enormously important uh, metric that, that basically... Where, where, where we, it's our starting point, basically. It's also revealing about the team's philosophy. Ireland want the ball to be in play. We're, we're like you can see it. Yeah, you can see instinctively that the Andy Farrell era of Ireland is different from the Joe Schmidt era, and that we're maybe it's not. Maybe Joe Schmidt also kept the ball in play this amount of time, but um, it, yeah. certainly, it certainly feels like we're using this as a weapon as opposed to uh, it being coincidental. Yeah, and I think like the race is on now. You know, the race is on now for, for teams to, to understand what Ireland are doing and try and catch up with them because this trend is going up. You know, now th- there are elements within it. So, like, we look at the under-20s competitions as well, and they haven't seen that big increase in, in time and ball and play. So, this te- from the looks of it right now, it looks as if this is just being implemented at the international level, at the highest level, which is grand. It's totally fine. I'm, I'm, I'm a professional, so... The first weekend we did it, uh, we looked at this in detail, was the first round of the interprovincials, or second round of interprovincials. And it, like the ball and play was something astronomical. Um, obviously, the referees are getting used to it, people are getting used to it. But um, So two, thi- two things have happened here. World Rugby have changed the rules, and Ireland were already in, in advance of the World Rugby rule changes trying yeah. to <clears throat> turn this into our advantage. Exactly. And so if we look at the graph what we see is is that Ireland um, have kind of like the highest on average rate of ball and play in 2022 so that the, the highest number of minutes that were um, last year were 35 minutes of ball and play however since the implementation of these rules and the start of the Six Nations the you know last weekend's game went to 44 minutes of ball and play okay so there's uh, 44, 38, 37, 37 and 33. So the 33 game was the Italy-France game um, where France kicked the ball out of play a lot. That was the only game that was... But like, if you look at the what were the <clears throat> uh, the top five games, um, top highest, four of them were in the last two weeks. So it just gives you an idea. And then if we go on to the, the next slide, <clears throat> this will give us an idea of um, what, what the implement, implementation or implications are of this. We can see that you know the average number of ball and uh, actual activities that we grade was around two thousand two hundred, and it's now jumped to you know just under three thousand, which is insane. It's totally insane. So explain that, sorry. So basically, every time a player gets a ball, whether it's a carry, a catch, a pass, a kick, a ruck, a tackle, a tackle assist, a counter ruck, a line at lift, line at throw, line at jump, 
every time we do, we, we grade each instance based on you know whether the speed on the ball, whether it's the uh, accuracy of pass, the accuracy of the rook. So naturally enough, the more the ball is in play, the yeah. more activity there happens. Exactly, and it's actually a seismic leap forward. It's it's you're talking about a thirty percent increase, which is and I think we talked about it last week around you know you doing thirty percent more work per day. You know it's it's okay one day or month a week and this is what these guys do they 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 work harder you know for a very short period of time and they obviously have to get conditioned but if you're not conditioned to play against Ireland and you're not ready to to be working that hard as soon as you get to a certain point in time you're just not going to be able to physically exert that amount of energy and what happens is is that there's a another effect which is you're 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 mentally not able to do it so you start making mistakes and that's you know, we talked about this last week, and that's exactly what happens in the game on sa- on Saturday. I think it was at the the forty third minute. You know, the first point I saw it happening was the uh, coming to the line out slow. France were really slow to get in the line out. You could see they were like already beginning to to dip because they've already put in a full works full games work by that stage. You know, they'd already done a thousand activities by that stage. A ball and play obviously leads straight into the fact that everyone's talking about this as, as an unbelievable spectacle and a brilliant game because mm. clearly it helps. Um, it, is, I, I don't want to simplify it too much, but is it is it just a case that Irish uh, provinces and Ireland international level target French clubs and France internationally because they're so big? That more ball in play? No. Is it a fitness it's thing? or what? a fitness thing, yeah. Well, it, like the way to look at it... Um, is you look at the likes of say Jim Gavin's mm. foot, or Gaelic football uh, dynasty, you probably call it. And I remember going to a game, and I, you know, I found it very interesting the way they would score. They would do this kind of circle around outside the, the thirty meter mark. I think, I think thirty-five, and basically they just re- you know pass the ball in a circle. The players would go round and round in circles until they got to the optimal position, and they weren't under pressure to take the kick. And that was you know that was gameplay. Then you also had the skill. So the skill was they would be able to get the ball and be able to ping a pass 30 metres and the ball land in the person's hand rather than bouncing. But then they also had the fitness. So those three things put together are what is important. You've got your your game plan, which everybody knows. You've got your um, skill set levels at a certain level so that if you can't have to pass that ball, you can do it. And then you've also got the work rate so that everybody's working at the hardest rate. Ireland have that right now. Technical, uh, tactical conditioning. Yeah, yeah. So they're able to... Um, everybody knows what they're supposed to do. Everybody knows where, where they're supposed to go. But everybody has the skill set to be able to... And I think this is this this is a new era in rugby. Like I, This is, this is really, say, really exciting. When you're at the game, it's remarkable that the ball has moved so quickly along the back line. Mm-hmm. You're not actually sure. So we're up in the crowd and very high up and looking down. And mm-hmm. it's like, who has the ball? It's over there. Wow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and that's, that's something that... I, we can look into again I think this is the sort of simplified look at it yeah. but we also look at the distance between each breakdown so we would look at you know the 10 metres per, per distance between you know and a Y axis and that you know Ireland are right way up there very high so they, they spread the ball quite quite a lot but France keep it really really narrow and that's counter, counterintuitive to the way in which we think it is um, well, maybe we can delve into that uh, yeah. over the over the coming weeks. Yeah. The, the bit that you said that the race is on for everybody to catch up. Um, the the team who you'd fear the most being able to catch up in the period of time that we have is probably New Zealand, in that they have Joe Schmidt looking at this, going, yeah. "Okay, you have the high level of skill, but you don't have the same level of being able to do this for the 120 minutes or however yeah. long these games are actually." 
But the, the problem with that, though, Jerry, is that you need to have everybody knowing what they're supposed to do. Everybody knows what they're supposed to do. So, like, in the way in which Ireland play against New Zealand and they played against France at the weekend, for a defensive perspective, is they, they do something called close the door, right? And it's quite subtle. You probably want to, like, the vast majority of people won't see it, but when you're looking at the game, as much as, unfortunately, I am, <laughs> you do see it. And that's basically, they only move up, ever move up, when the player decides to pass, okay? So, basically, you'll see... They, they, they move up as, as soon as they can until the player gets the ball in their hand and once they make a decision either to pass or to carry they then move they, they sprint up again so basically they shut the door shut the, shut the door and the way in which the French try playing last weekend and the way in which the, the New Zealanders usually play is that they've usually got one guy who's able to break a tackle or break a play or make an amazing you know game changing play but if that's taken out if, you, if, you, if you're cutting out the decision making or the ability to do that and that's how you beat these teams. So it's 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 not just the skill. It's not just the fact that they can go left or right. It's the fact that they're able to. And like you could see that the breakdown in the, the, the structure is so well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody knows what they're supposed to be doing, and that's it's you know massive credit to to we Okay. The the next slide, uh, Derek. You're talk. You're looking at performance by position. Which yeah. It's quite interesting. I'm basically looking at it all except the front row. Ireland outperformed France essentially. Yeah, but fundamentally, yeah. Well, the second row as well, second row um, flat margin, and then the centres as well. <laughs> well, yeah, a couple. So basically, <laughs> we have our back row who would be the best in the world right now. For the um, for, for the podcast listeners, though, the yeah. the French front row is slightly ahead. The second row, they're level. The um, centres are level as well. And so, yeah. And what what we're saying here is is that we're we're taking those. I mean. Uh, so there was three thousand three hundred and six of those. There was one thousand eight hundred of them we're Ireland's and what we're doing is we, we then um, say okay well that's that's kind of like a score to, based on the quality of the player's performance so the pass how accurate it was a 5 is best and the 4 is you know really good 3 is expected and 2 is ball goes to play and our ground and 1 is a turnover when we aggregate all those scores by these positions whether it's the even the substitutes we can then average out and say okay which of these positions are making more mistakes and which of these positions are, are better so that we can then build a game plan around specifically this, how to beat a team. Um, and yeah, as you can see, the back row were obviously better. The the halfbacks, I think Intermac probably had a poor game, if, if I'm honest, by his standards. Um, he, he, he struggled to get into the game. Because DuPont obviously had a great game. DuPont was off the charts, yeah. like He probably had probably the best game in the competition so far. Um, and still at a half-back pairing level, Ireland beat them. Yeah, yeah, because Sexton had a great game as well. Sexton had a really, really top game. Um, yeah, and there's probably something we can go into in a bit more detail next week or, you know, when when, when we don't have the games actually to do. Um, but yeah, from, from, and even the back row as well. So the kicking, catching and passing and carrying, Ireland were significantly better than the back three, even though the French player came out a little bit there, as you as you predicted. Yeah, <laughs> kick to them willy nilly at your at your peril. Oh, like, yeah. no, that's not how they play anymore. It's like, oh, it's pretty good. It was so, bad, but it was more poor defending than than French. There was a lot of poor defending in the middle, yeah. of that, but you're that's the the dread hand of the statistician coming. In. No, it's only poor defending. It was <laughs> it was glorious. It was absolutely glorious. Yeah, we can yeah. totally appreciate it now that we've won that of game. Of course, yeah. And, but like, don't forget it. And you look at the Scottish game and the the Welsh game, and you look at the Irish game. Like, there was only a couple of points. In it at half time, 
but it was that conditioning and that ability to and the quality of these positions to be able to push on and, and yeah, to pull it, away it did feel like we were superior in the first half and it did feel like we were going to be able to do what we were doing repeatedly whereas mm-hmm. it took that moment of a bit of genius and a few missed tackles for for their try to um, to happen the, the tens um, comparison you've done that yeah. for us because we, we're obviously like we, we don't know how well Ross Byrne is going to do over the long period of time but we're beginning to build up some pictures of uh, what happens previously we would have said that whenever Sexton isn't in the team the difference is chalk and cheese mm-hmm. when Ireland play no matter who the, the, the fill-in is how did he do at the weekend? Yeah so um, this is just a graph kind of outline so we need to kind of take into consideration what they're doing and then how well they're doing it so um, if we look at this graph we're kind of showing the kind of key five strat- or, or skill sets of a 10 so you've got carrying kicking passing tackling and rooking and by aggregating what the players are doing, we're able to say, okay, well, you know, Ross Byrne as a now Sexton and Intermac had nearly twice as many of activities as Byrne, so it's not as, as very equal. So that's why it's out of percentages. But we're showing here is is that um, Ross Byrne carries the ball forty four percent of the time, Intermac forty one, and Sexton thirty eight percent. So, and then if you look at the kicking stats, and uh, Sexton kicks the ball twenty three percent. Into Mac fifteen and Burn sixteen, so there's a little bit of discrepancy between them, but we, we would need more than one game to, sure. to be able to show. But you know, fundamentally, Burn had a good game. You know, he had a good game from what he was asked to do. He he was you know similar to what Sexton and and Inter Mac were. But when we go to the next slide, it kind of shows the kind of reality of the situation, which is the quality. So when we aggregate the quality of those kicks, the quality of those passes, the quality of those uh, carries, we can see that Sexton's um, carrying and passing is significantly better. But the thing about it, this is, is that this gives somebody like the RFU or somebody like the Leinster branch or Leinster Rugby the ability to go in and say, okay, this is the this is factually the difference between the two players in passing. This yeah. is Burn Ross. We need to, you to work on your passing over this distance. These are your targets, and this is yeah, and this is how we set short, medium, long term goals using analytics to help players and coaches improve. Okay, so I think from an Irish rugby fan's perspective. The fact that the fall off to Ross Byrne is nowhere near as pronounced as it might have been in, in previous years is really encouraging. Like we're not we're not totally toast if Sexton is unavailable for a big game. This is this is genuinely like how many hours a week do you talk about Sexton? Well, it's <laughs> like, the most important, literally the most important character in our sport. Yeah, yeah. Now I'd say um, look it, structures and um, fitness. Uh, skill level and um, the ability of a team to pull all t- together is always going to be more important than the one individual. So we can see that at the weekend. We lost our front row. We lost back row, our second row with Ty Byrne. We, we lost our, our scrum halves. We lost our centres. But the, the, the structure of the actual team stayed the same and the ability of the team to play on. So I, I wouldn't be as stressed <laughs> as it, as as you are around whether it be Ross Byrne oh, we're, getting it be, we're getting there we're getting there we're, we're getting we're, there Joe. okay yeah. we're, we're getting there we are <laughs> the, um, the, the kicking stats aren't uh, so the, this is ball and play as opposed to kicking off the tee yeah, no kick, kicking so when we say kicking we say kick to touch kick up and play box kicks cross field kicks Kick a goal, drop goals. It's it's an amalgamation of all those together. Would Intermax stats then be affected by the fact that Ramos is taking the 
Yeah, kicks from yeah, it could be. Yeah, be, well, it's again that, that that would be taken into consideration the the, the kicking. So you can see Intermac in the percentage and what they do. Mm. So there, there's there ha- there, this is definitely something that is completely different to React Ruby than than our competitors. We're, we're looking at not just what teams do, but how well they do, in, you know, implement those those activities. And what 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 our difference is is that like the the activities themselves could be considered what the coach's game plan is for the team. We want you to do this. The grades allow us to identify the bit player's ability to implement that game plan. So if we see a skewed line where it's a couple of players are up and down, because and that's basically the players not understanding what it is they're supposed to be doing. Or just out of their depth, and presumably you want to be seeing Ross Byrne stats higher than, than given he's not in the pitch for maybe as long as Johnny Sexton. I know he was replaced reasonably early, but you want to be seeing Ross Byrne stats up there, um, like which they, which they appear to be for for carrying certainly and and, and passing. Yes, but again, it's, it's how that fits in. Is that what the coach wants him to do? Yeah. Does does the coach want him to pass or carry? And like that's something that. You know the 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 Welsh and the Italians are having trouble with, which is the ball gets to their ten and the ten turns around and the players are too close to them. Like you'll see it with the Welsh game, players aren't in position where they know they're where they're supposed to be, so the ten doesn't know what to do because I'm not going to pass the ball a half a meter to somebody because it's just going to be a hospital pass. So that all these things kind of add up, and our our analytics are able to then identify why or how or who is responsible for that. Let's talk about Kalen Doris. How did he do? Yeah, Kalen. Um, I might have been a bit harsh when my first pods I was in here with by Kalen. I think I might have said he needs to get uh, bring in uh, Conan. Um, but basically, we what we have here is a you've graph. changed your tune, have you? I have indeed. I, my tail is yeah, well back. between my legs here. Yeah. <laughs> but um, the, the, basically, we have two graphs here, one indicating the quality of performance and the second one looking at the, the number of activities that are happening, he's involved with, or his production in the game. And basically, the, for people that are, are listening to this, it's the, 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 the trend line are both going in the right direction, where his performance, the quality of his performance have increased significantly. And that's over everything. I, I tried going in to see whether or not it was based on his carrying or his rooking or his lineates. And it's just a bit of everything. It's not, there's no one trend, so which is really, really good. It just shows that he was, he's improving in every performance. And this, this is the quintessential for any, any teams, any players, any coaches that are out there. Understanding players that are improving is, is, is so important to your, your team's performance. Um, this this graph just shows how important he is. So, uh, for people at home, the first game that we have on this graph graph is the um, the uh, second test against New Zealand. He had eighty three instances in the game, and on Saturday he had one hundred and thirty player into activities wow. graded. So you know fifty fifty odd more activities involved in the game, and this 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 just shows the game plan of the team. And how Car- Doris fits into it. Also, his maturity, growing sense of confidence, and all that kind yeah, of stuff. That, yeah. yeah. And then the, the the graph on top then just shows the quality of his performance. So when we average out all of Kalen's scores or all his grades, you know he goes from a three point two eight to a three point four two. But he's he's kind of on that level the whole time. So it just means that he's getting to the breakdown quick enough, or he's making the right decisions at the breakdown, he's making the right decisions at the line-out, he's making the right decisions at the passing, and, you know, everything. So he's, you know, very, very important part player for Ireland. 
Um, I, I don't know. Have you done all the other games in, yet, or is that the type of thing that happens over the rest of the week? No, well, we, we've got the we've got two of the, the games done. Where, where I, I, the Super Bowl got in the way of the, no. the third game, um, which yeah, it's a bit it's very disappointed with the the, um, the defense of uh, God, I Eagles. The Eagles, yeah, I was. I, I thought they were going to come come good. No sacks. Uh, but I think you know you got to you got to put it up to the, the offensive line for Kansas City. You know they they were able to to stop anything that King was put at them. You know, yeah. They, they, they obviously the, the 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 situation got to got to Phillies instead. Yeah, I'm sure their defense, but not to their their kid quarterback who had an all time great yeah. game and still yeah. ends up on the losing side. Yeah. Um, is there any any other trends you saw from the rugby that you think um, like the the French kicking any of that stuff that's um, Hugo Keenan obviously had a great game that was one of the other things you'd, you'd mentioned to us yeah Hugo had another brilliant, really excellent game um, he <clears throat> so the, the other kind of major element or the major identifier that, that France were right on their feet was I think was it at the 50 56th minute I think it was maybe, maybe I opened in my notes but um, basically you, you had um, it was the 56th minute yeah where uh, the, the 5022 you could see that the French were out of position that's a massive indicator that the t- the players are becoming fatigued where they think they were out of position that they weren't you know getting into position because you, you, know, you just don't see there won't be one player in the backfield yeah. at international level um, but Hugo the way he, he, um, his positioning is is immaculate you know his ability to, to understand where that kick is going to be um, and then also coming out, so it was interesting to see France. Anytime they kicked and the ball landed somewhat outside of the twenty-two, you had Hugo run the ball back, which is definitely different to what what had previously happened in the games where Ireland would have just kicked it back. So why do you think we're doing that? So we're looking for that that similar situation to uh, the try by Hugo. So we're looking for that. Okay, we can we get into midfield? Can we break down? Can we get into a third or fourth phase where we can set up a strike play, or you know, just to, to, to tire bodies out? And like, like I'm going to throw down after this, but like, um, the the uh, what's the the hooker's or props name? Who's yellow carded? The, the Antonio. Antonio. Yeah. Like we found two other instances in the game, but well, three altogether where. You know he could be cited for that. Mm. Where there was a, t- a missed late tackle on Sexton, and then there was a, a tackle off the ball on Porter. I think it was where it was just like, like and I, I suppose he's trying to bring in the same type of game plan that that Shell did, where it's quite aggressive. You, you know, you you um, cut down the space of Leinster. You, you try and command the game a lot more, but you, you're, you're very very physical. He probably tried to implement that, and 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 that wasn't the, what the game plan was from France. So he he went out of his, and he he, you know, he's going to miss the, a couple of games now because of it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Really interesting stuff, Derek. Thanks a million. Cheers. Cheers, Les. It's uh, Derek McMurray from ReactRugby.com. If you want to check out more of that as well. Thirteen minutes past nine. We're going to talk to Johnny Cooper in just a moment. Here's what's on OTV Sports Radio for you today. OTV Gold is Barry Ryan talking about his book The Ascent. An all new episode of Dadcast at three. The career retrospective of Matty Holland. At four, the life and times of Johnny Cobain at six is OTB Gold. And then Joe is back in the show, in the chair tonight from seven. 
with the return of a slight tangent and plenty more. Make sure you follow us across all of our social channels and subscribe to the OTB Podcast Network for all the best in the latest sports content. You can get that on the Go Loud app. As I said, after the break, Johnny Cooper. OTB AM. Okay, I'm delighted to say we're joined now by former Dublin Gaelic footballer and Electric Ireland Sigerson Cup winner with DCUDE, Johnny Cooper, as he looks ahead to Wednesday's Electric Ireland Sigerson Cup final between UL and UCC. This year, through its hashtag First Class Rivals campaign, Electric Ireland celebrated the unexpected alliances formed between county rivals as they come together in pursuit of some of the most coveted titles across Camogie and GAA. Johnny, good morning to you. How are you getting on? Morning, Chair. Yeah, really good. Um not too bad. Nice bright morning. So, uh, really good. How are you? Yeah, pretty good. Um, uh, as far as I know, the the Sigerson's U one were all full of stuff with high quality dubs. Were there any any non dubs on your teams that you were uh, you were actually friends with at the end of that? It's always good to start with a loaded question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's excuse me, there's plenty of dubs. All right, but I know there's loads. Uh, like I mean, Aidan Walsh and um, Michael Murphy and Robbie Henley. Yeah, there was plenty of. Uh, Guys from outside the M50 as well, so really good days. Michael good Murphy's pretty good. He's a decent player. I, I think I think it was the Monaghan influence. Niall Moyna being the manager, potentially. Oh, yeah. We can give true, some credit to him. True, and Mick Bohan and a few other good uh, good leaders there too. Jesus, that's one of the great all-time backroom teams. Then is it? <laughs> there was a couple of um, heavy hitters, all right, along the years. Yeah, well, Mick Bohan would have been the main coach in fairness, and obviously he's with the ladies the last couple of years and, and with the men's prior to that. Uh, and Niall Moyna, as mentioned, uh, I think he's passed. He's moved on now. He's still in the university. We're not coaching. Paddy is obviously there now. Um, was it enjoyable? Because like you guys obviously had pressure of playing for intercounty, but there's this kind of just this little release valve where you're with your mates and you're having the crack with people who you know you're going to come up against uh, potentially later on down the year. So how did you prepare for that from uh, just a mental level? Ah, completely. I know we were joking there about playing with different guys, but like the perspective and I know again we're joking about Dubs not getting outside the M50, but even from a personal point of view, like the mass massive amount of insight, uh, social, um, I guess, diversity of background. You know, obviously you're playing with quality guys and that's great because on the pitch is important, but even from a personal development, stay in touch with plenty. Um, a lot of them guys uh, that I would have been playing serious with over them years. So I, I think it's a little bit different now. Obviously, out of the college scene, a good number of years now, I think it's a little bit different. The intercounty scene absolutely has first priority, whereas I think at the time there was, there was a little bit of, um, you know, um, I guess people probably, yeah, probably went out of their way a little bit more to play Sigerson. I would think, um, I, I respect the competition massively and hopefully it, hopefully it doesn't erode, um, maybe because the space and time it's been given the last couple of years within the county pressure, obviously, uh, coming on, coming a little bit heavier and, and stronger. Um, it'd be interesting to see where it goes, but hopefully it remains. And I don't think it can be ring fenced, but somewhere in that space, I think will be useful to maybe pursue. Yeah, for sure. Um, the, the Michael Murphy, I was chatting to him recently, is um, uh, heading up the sports department in in Letterkenny, and he was talking about the the importance of third level education generally. And I, I kind of I think that sometimes we take it for granted. I was listening to the football pod, and um, Paddy Andrews, who I think was a teammate of yours, was again, and and Tommy were just talking about like it's really important that we do actually give this some space whatever space it's required because it's an opportunity for players as you say to mix from other backgrounds but also just to mature at their own pace because everybody matures at, at a different pace and sometimes you're ready for intercounty and sometimes you're not uh, no, I fully agree and I just listened to your rugby conversation a couple of minutes ago I mean one of the unfortunate downsides certainly from my experience of GA is obviously you get to see guys across the four white lines but beyond that from other counties that is but beyond that 
it doesn't probably venture too far. Um, and college is certainly that outlet. You know, you get to mix, you get to see people in very different lights. I mentioned a moment ago the social, the personal development, the perspectives you get for people with different backgrounds. Um, and hopefully then the diversity of thought, um, various other elements that come into your psyche that to be quite honest, aside from the third level education in any university, be it in, in ATU or Michael Murphy or DCU with, you know, Niall Moyna, Obviously, the academics that you're getting or the, just the exposure in that regard in terms of upskilling yourself, um, you know, education wise, think from a number of different angles. And hopefully, as I said a moment ago, it doesn't erode or doesn't continue to, you know, there's a massive amount of pressure. But at the same time, I reflect, you know, amount of a number of years I reflect on my time, you know, S- Sunday, Wednesday was was music to my ears, you know, fortunately lads get injured and that's the downside of it too. But, you know, Sunday, Wednesday or at the time it was actually Friday, Saturday, a Sigerson weekend. And then the following weekend, you were playing National Football League. So, look, not ideal. And if you were designing it from scratch, would you do it that way? No, probably not. But at the same time, I think there's massive upsides, as you mentioned there, and, and upshots to it all if the balance is struck. And I appreciate that's a big if at times. Sorry, go on. Uh, just know, I, I know you've done that, the, the Masters in Behavioural Psychology, Johnny, which is fascinating as well. And, and it, it strikes me when you're talking about coming up against lads later in the year for, for your county that you would have played with at Sigerson level. Does it, does it have an impact at all on, on performance? Like when you're when you're playing against someone you know so well, if you're up against a forward that, you, that you're you're friends with and you socialise with, as you say, throughout the year at college level, or is it just a case of at intercounty level you have to be a robot? Yeah, um, like no, it doesn't make any difference. I mean, coming up against lads, seeing them in as a normal, as we all should, um, as a normal person, as a human, etc. What they like, what they don't like, what their tendencies are, what their fears, what their you know, motivations are obviously when you're playing into county and you don't know guys as such, you just take them on face value. You watch them and you do your analysis and they kick and they run and they catch and they jump, etc. But obviously that's only, you know, 10% of the actual picture. So getting to know lads in different lights is definitely very helpful. Albeit I probably wouldn't personally have come up against too many forwards. It would have been, you know, the likes of Rob Henley and Michael Murphy, uh, so Michael at times, but, um, Neil Collins and these guys from Roscommon more so in my circle. So, Definitely useful to know. It probably just gives you a greater appreciation, if I'm being honest about it, because as I said, you probably don't get the opportunity to socialise or converse beyond just the, you know, the, the 60, 70 minutes on a football pitch. So I think it's very useful and um, perhaps very useful to guys from a few different perspectives. And albeit at the time, personally anyway, probably didn't take full stock of it. But certainly now looking back, you're like massive opportunity to stay in contact with everyone from, you know, David Kelly and Sligo to Carl Craig and in, in, in Connacht doing fantastic work. And I guess from a networking, from a social, from a professional point of view as well, years later, um, as it should be, you'll fall back on these relationships beyond just, uh, you know, the medals or the Sigerson Cup wins that you had, albeit as important as they are at the time. Uh, one thing I, I wanted to, to bring up there, um, Paddy, I think, has spoken as well about being dropped from the team and using that as motivation and, and watching the team be successful. Um, we had Conor McKenna on last week and he was saying he was um, at a game in Croker when he could have been playing and he felt a little bit sick when Tyrone were 5-1 up against, you know, just that he would be missing out on it. I think sometimes we just assume that um, the Dublin success story is, is relatively straightforward. But actually, as individuals, you all had to nursed your own motivations at, at different stages along the way. Did you, were you always able to refer back to the first bit when you weren't in the team to keep you going at, at the, at the absolute peak or how did you, how did you top up the levels of desire and motivation to keep going? 
Yeah, I, I think certainly for me, and look, you're right, everyone has their own journey, um, you know, whether it's Kieran Kilkenny that comes straight onto the team and plays and has been playing ever since, or whether it's, you know, Brian Fenton that doesn't play, you know, minor and all of a sudden it takes a couple of years. Everyone has their own journey. Myself, no different. I didn't play, albeit on the an all Ireland winning team, 2010, captain of that team, and thought it would be just a natural kind of next step and didn't happen to me for another couple of years. Eventually got a, a, an opportunity in their path then, 2012, just to be on the squad. Yeah, I think certainly for me, the, a big motivator was it took a couple of years to get there and would have endeavoured and, and been as disciplined as possible in terms of training and so on at that time just to get an opportunity, just to get onto a possible squad, which is 30-odd players, never mind a match day or never mind a 15 or never mind as a transpire for me to be captain of the team. Mm-hmm. So certainly at times, um, very useful to me, Jair. I think then as the, my career progressed, I kind of lost that bit of you know, that bit of sense of, you know, because I, I was there and I was firmly there three or four years into it. So I was more trying to find those little, I guess, diverse um, lateral um, insights that might have been there. And I know we talked before and around just cleaning insights from different sports, different organizations, different people um, across the board. And that was probably then more as the second half of my career took off the opportunity then just to keep as I am now, remain curious to know that uh, I know very, very little. So what's out there and the exciting opportunity that's there just to, as I said, upscale and glean and maybe, as it was for me for the last number of years, try and influence and lead that group um, as best as possible. When you're trying to deal with and process disappointments like that, Johnny, like not getting into a squad, I, I think I've heard you speaking before about that semi-final defeat to Donegal as well and how you were out that night and talking about you, how you felt your own preparation maybe wasn't as, as good as it could have been and blaming yourself for some Donegal goals. Is, is that an important part of being an elite athlete? You almost have to, even if you don't feel like you were at fault, you almost have to take some level of responsibility to keep your ego in check and maybe, I, I guess, give yourself something to come back the following year and, and, and have that as motivation. Yeah, I think so, Shane. I mean, like for me, it's trying to, you know, and we're all, as I said, have our own journeys, certainly at the start of my career, 11 or 12 years ago, like the the, the limited self-awareness, the limited, I guess, in some regards, ability to be able to be humble and be very honest with myself, never mind be honest with teammates and so on. So I think um, only from a personal perspective, you build up that sort of, I guess, awareness of self. And that comes through, you know, doing education, GPA, been very, very good over the years. I've gone through some different diplomas and executive um, leadership and masters in organizational behavior and psychology and, and that type of thing. So for me, kind of that bit of self-awareness is important to be able to, to be able to, I guess, honestly reflect upon yourself. But then also when you have the opportunity to talk to coaches or managers or even colleagues and your peers and teammates that you actually have the ability to to bring the the pertinent and the right information to the table as opposed to maybe when you're 20, 21, et cetera, maybe not as mature, you're not as developed, maybe don't as much perspective perhaps experience obviously at the time as well so um i think that self-awareness is probably the key bit as i reflect upon the the question that you asked uh, johnny you, you did a round of media yesterday i don't know if you've had a chance to, to look at the papers if you've been sent the, the clippings yet but um there's a lot of focus on just your your brutal honesty about your recovery from the horrific attack you suffered and i just wondered is it something that you're comfortable talking about now is is it something that you're never going to be comfortable talking about um because I, I hadn't you know obviously we'd, we'd read some stuff before about it but i hadn't really heard you talk about it it's a funny one for me jr a little bit like uh, as a question is asked now i'll be as honest as possible in, in answering the question but probably wouldn't be going out of my way maybe to to share in lots of ways very happy to help and even even though this morning if i'm being honest somebody got in contact with me to say they've been through a similar situation and 
how do I deal with it basically and looking for a bit of help and for me that's just magic that's gold dust you know if I can help somebody in any situation beyond just performance and sports and day to day I'm involved in you know um, organisations and working with leadership teams and high potentials and so on so like to be brutally honest about being crude I know it's early part of more like it's it's 11 or 12 stab wounds to your head I mean and some of them are millimetres a couple on the eyelid a couple on the ears many on the back of my neck like it should have been like there's no there's no doubt in my mind it should have been curtains for me and that's just that's not curtains from football career like it was very very close so you know and Shane mentioned earlier on that the, the the big thing for me was that Donegal performance and my own preparation for that performance I guess as it transpired put me in that situation and I that was kind of a massive development and learning for me and um, to just be be as prepared as possible and probably endeavoured. Um, I don't know if I ever got there with my former teammates, but endeavoured to earn their respect in terms of my preparation as well as my on-field um, performances. So look, I'm very happy to talk about it, but at the same time, it's obviously, a, you know, it's a, it's a touchy enough subject that needs, yeah, to be unpacked and maybe, you know, um, spoken about in, in certain ways. But as I said, that person that got in touch with me, like it makes, that makes the world a difference to me to be able to possibly support somebody that's maybe going through a difficult challenge or journey um, that I might have been through and that resonates with them, you know? Yeah, I've no doubt you you won this, the respect of your teammates. Um, uh, famously, Bernard called you a process ninja. So that, that definitely happened. Um, I, I think, like, uh, when you talked about suffering fear from it afterwards I think it's it's a, a universal response that many people have to trauma and to be honest I feel like showing that publicly is a, a vulnerability that we all need to show more of that we all need to talk about these things because otherwise we kind of skirt around what it means to be a human being and and don't really fulfill our full potential yeah and it's, it's something that resonates in my professional environment as I mentioned a moment ago I get to work with you know um, leaders and senior leadership teams and we talk a lot about connecting with your people connecting with your teams showing care and demonstrating that but also to your point of being vulnerable and being able to actually be yourself and be authentic and be be you we all have stories and all have past and all have I guess ways in which you know we we're brought up or different experiences and sharing them I just have one very, very small snippet. Um, equally, if we were in a different medium, a different conversation today, you know, they would go around the table and we could unpack various things and profound sort of experiences, I think, are, are, are certainly worth sharing. Obviously, there's a time and place to do it and there's kind of that moment, et cetera, to do it. Um, but I, I think you're right. And probably we do a lot of, again, from professional work, a lot of kind of collaboration and knowledge sharing with the Southern Hemisphere um, colleagues and so on that are down there. They're really, really good in particular at sort of, you know, just being open, not that the Irish people aren't open, but being more open and more open to, you know, whatever I have, I'm bringing it forward and that's the best of me. I know it's not perfect. I'm not perfect, certainly, but bringing that forward and being, I guess, honest in that regard can only be more powerful. I think the the Irish way and the Irish sort of, human as such is certainly we're certainly getting there uh, but I think we have a bit of work to do and that's sort of what ma- makes my job every day fascinating and trying to help and support people in terms of their performance potential that being one powerful element to it I suppose that's why I, I actually brought it up and I appreciate you know it's, it is a very delicate subject but the decision to go public and, and to talk about it that's kind of you know it's, it's in the papers today and, and people can read more details on it but I, I do think that that shows you know, a care beyond yourself. And it can't have been an easy decision to talk about. 
No, no. Um, but like you, you can't bury things away or certainly that was my perspective. Like a, in some ways, albeit a, a Z lister when you're playing for the Dublin football team, you know, you're, you're sort of public uh, in lots of ways. And I just felt for a number of reasons, it's important to get it out there, but obviously to own, you know, I firmly feel accountable for putting myself and putting my family to a lesser extent in, in kind of awkward situations during that particular time. So I felt ownership and accountable to the front up in lots of ways and be honest and, and be open. Um, everyone has a couple of drinks on a Friday and Saturday. It wasn't ideal for me that night. It was an unfortunate event, but at the same time, it was an incredible learning. Wouldn't wish it anybody uh, upon anybody, but at the same time for me, and I spoke about this before, around my ego and and other elements just not being right, not being aligned and not being, you know, where they needed to be because I, I love supporting people and teams and and performance and if you as a leader which as I said I was lucky enough to be for the Dublin team for a number of years if you're not there and if you're not accountable if you're not honest and you're not presenting yourself in the moment in the situation and you're burying some things albeit some of those things might be delicate I, I just don't see how it fully um, you get the potential out of yourself so yeah, look, I think it's going to be a bit of a journey. Um, I sort of unpacked it a little bit. Some of it's been public, you know, obviously had conversations at home and whatnot as well. And that's been very, very helpful. But, you know, I still have, I still get scared when I'm on my own and it's dark. Um, I'll be very honest. Um, and at times I don't like to be places that are you no know, street lights and that type of thing and kind of looking over my shoulder. I wouldn't put the earphones in as maybe I used to do. If you're listening to music, I'd be very, very vigilant. Um, that's just one you know, one kind of um, thing that's followed me around the last number of years. But as I said, it's good to own it and it's good to, and thanks for asking the question, it's good to, you know, talk about it too. Yeah, I think it's really brave to talk about it. And I think that, um, you know, I think we as a country definitely have a journey to go when it comes to being open. We're definitely getting better at it, 100% getting better at it. But, um, you know, and I think these conversations, I hope, are helping. And if there is anybody out there who, who gets any comfort from it, um, to know that, you know, because you were an elite athlete, you, you could absolutely look after yourself, you could a- absolutely protect yourself, but that you still feel vulnerable when there aren't streetlights or, or when there's darkness or when you're on your own. And I think that a lot of people are going to identify with that, particularly people who've been through anything on, on the scale of things that um, that you went through. Yeah, no, for sure. And I think, look, like trauma and going through a certain instance um, was certainly not pretty and um, there's lots of learnings but upon reflection and, and that's the important thing like time does pass like for me the the sunlight you know the the, the sunlight c- comes down on my, my Dublin football career but every morning like this morning the sunlight comes up and there's a new like and people speaking people being open um, as you said I think there's a bit, a bit, bit of, to go, bit of ways to go for, for us as a kind of a nation but at the same time I think it's definitely turning and there's definitely lots more opportunity for people um, to reach out um, and invariably there will be there always is somebody's ears that are there that you can rely upon albeit you mightn't think it at the time Johnny you've been really good with your time and I know you've got to go but I do have one final question how long is it going to be before we see you on a sideline coaching because it sounds like you've got a lot of knowledge to impart <laughs> Um, <laughs> I don't know. I'm still massively curious. The retirement thing doesn't sit well. Uh, massively curious. I'm going to continue to pull a couple of threads around just trying to stay open and connect with as many different people. I don't know. Look, I don't know if I'll be even any good as a coach or, or beyond that. Um, but as I said, very interested to help learn um, and also help translate people's performance potential. I don't know what context that might be. Maybe it's business. Maybe it's not. Um, but wouldn't rule out anything. But at the same time, I know I have a massive journey of knowledge Um and understanding to gain uh, in the next couple of years too. Well, enjoy the retirement wherever it takes you, Johnny. Great to talk to you again. Thanks a million. 
Thanks, Jared. Thanks, Shane. It's uh, Johnny Cooper there, who's, of course, helping us to promote the fact that it's Sigerson Week. Um, so, yeah. Stories put, his story just puts everything in, in perspective in a lot of ways. I, 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 well, it sounds strange to say it, but because um, Jim Gavin's dressing room was so closed, as in we didn't in the media or in public see or hear anything from it, which is probably part of the reason why they were so successful, when you hear someone like Johnny speaking openly, it, it nearly has more weight because we didn't hear any of those Dublin footballers talk for their own reasons, of course, for performance reasons. But um, Johnny speaks so openly and so well about it, about his incident that it's just, it, it definitely is an encouragement to other people who maybe wouldn't have otherwise. Yeah. All right. It's uh, 35 minutes past nine o'clock this morning. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. On tomorrow's show, Keith Wood, Graham Hunter, Max Darcy, and plenty more. OTBAM. With Gillette, get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar.